Welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel and podcast. Today is a special community Christmas episode. Use the table of contents to skip around. Um, we're going to start off by having a chat with Lightspeed Yannick Kilcher, have a bit of a catch up. We are going to uh, do a little news section where we talk about a few papers that are interesting us at the moment. Uh, reader mail. We have uh, a few of you have sent us in some messages, so uh, we'll respond to those. And also, we have a conversation with um, a couple of the community members. One about type theory, and the other one about inductive priors in language models in GPT-3. I am state of the art. Do you have the slightest <laughs> idea how little that narrows it down? <laughs> I, I was wondering, how much does improvement over state-of-the-art mean, like, really? It means one paper. But, like, percentage. It's, it's, if you have, if you write the magic letters S-O-T-A, with the first and the last capitalized, uh -huh. the reviewers magically will lift from their chairs <laughs> and up to the sky, where they'll be treated to a massage, come back down, their hand will be guided to the accept button. Guided, 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 guided to the accept button. Merry Christmas! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Yeah, basically, it's been a year of machine learning street talk and we're incredibly grateful to all of you. So many of you have left amazing comments in the comment section every single week. It wouldn't be possible to do this without you. But we recently passed 5K subscribers and we're hurtling towards 10K. So yeah, honestly, thank you so much for supporting us. It's an absolute honor. And that's just the YouTube subscribers, right? Uh, there are many more listening to this as a podcast because I mean, as, as good looking as we are, our faces talking probably aren't the the most exciting view so to all the podcast listeners we are actively trying to get more and more into making our content hearer friendly rather than only viewer friendly but remind us if we you know if we fail every now and then now um this week is a notional community edition now some of you might not realize but yannick has a discord community and we kind of share the Discord community. So, you know, I, I, I call it my home as well. All of the machine learning street talk folks are in there. And we have about 2000 people in there. It's a really vibrant community. I don't even know how this happened. There's this kind of weird self-organizing behavior that happens where we've now got loads of community leaders and they're running uh, weekly seminars about things and there's lots of interesting conversations going on. So I guess that the first thing is join the community if you haven't already. It's also a great way to get more interaction with us. Let's look at a, a few papers that we wanted to discuss. So this paper is quite an interesting one. It's just fairly fresh from DeepMind. Object-based attention for spatio-temporal reasoning outperforming neurosymbolic models with flexible distributed architectures. So there's been a big song and dance lately about how um, the future is hybrid and how we need to have neurosymbolic models. And then DeepMind comes along and pretty much seems to prove the opposite, or do they? So in their abstract, this is by Ding et al. Neural networks have achieved success in a wide array of perceptual tasks, but it's often stated that they are incapable of solving tasks that require higher level reasoning. Two new task domains, Cleverer and Cater, have recently been developed to focus on reasoning as opposed to perception in the context of spatial temporal interactions between objects. 
Initial experiments on these domains found that neurosymbolic approaches, which couple a logic engine and language parser with a neural perceptual front end, substantially outperform fully learned distributed networks, a finding that was taken to support the above thesis. Here they show the contrary, that a fully learned neural network with the right inductive biases can perform substantially better than all of the previous neurosymbolic models on both of these tasks, particularly on questions that most emphasize reasoning over perception. Their model makes critical use of both self-attention and learned soft object-centric representations, as well as BERT-style semi-supervised predictive losses. These flexible biases allow their model to surpass the previous neurosymbolic state-of-the-art using less than 60% of the available labeled data. So they think that these results refute the neurosymbolic thesis laid out by previous work involving these data sets, and they provide evidence that neural networks can indeed learn to reason effectively about the causal dynamic nature or structure of physical events. Very interesting. So um, I haven't read this paper in great detail, but this is basically their architecture. So first of all, what is the cleverer data set? Well, if you have a look at it, it's a diagnostic data set for compositional language and elementary visual reasoning. So it's um, a data set which has been programmatically generated. And this is an example of an image and you can ask questions. So are there an equal number of large things and metal spheres? What size is the cylinder that is left of the brown metal thing uh, that is left of the big sphere? So there are 70,000 images and 0.7 million questions in condition A. There's a validation set with about 15,000 images and 150,000 questions and a validation set of 15,000 images and 150,000 questions on condition B. Okay, interesting. Okay, so this is the overall architecture. Um, as you can see, we need to have representations for both the question, which is text, and also the, um, the vision information. So they use something called Monet for the vision, and this segments each frame into object representation. So it says it first uses a recurrent attention network to obtain a set of n object attention masks, where n is a fixed parameter, and each attention mask represents the probability that any given pixel belongs to the mask's object. The pixels assigned to the mask are then encoded into latent variables. Okay, so some kind of representation algorithm for the vision space. They also do um, a kind of presumably a BERT style embedding mechanism for the question. And then they um, link it together into a transformer and positional encoding network, which has a self-supervised learning phase and also a fine tuning or supervised learning phase as well. Now, what's really interesting is that why would this work, right? Because we spoke to Gary Marcus recently and he made it quite clear that GPT-3 was just a parlor trick. It's just learning patterns. Yeah, you, you might remember this paper. Um, I think Yannick did a video on this and we've had Guillaume Lampel on the podcast. And at the time, people thought, well, this is incredible. They're taking complex mathematical formulas. They're converting it into a tree structure and then they're using deep learning to kind of predict the answers. Surely that's only possible if you do reasoning. But the incredible thing about nature is that there are always shortcuts patterns always exist and clearly we know how to do reasoning and we know the rules but it's possible for these deep learning models to take shortcuts and maybe that's what's happening here in, in this paper from DeepMind is it actually doing reasoning or do shortcuts exist which we don't completely understand oh yeah so they are using you know there's that clever data set which has yep. reasoning about objects and their positions 
and mm-hmm. they've used a transformer architecture and they now outperform these neurosymbolic models. That was certainly unexpected. I've wondered about this and there, there's some crucial experiments missing there. When you have these math problems and you know that the way, like you can construct math problems such that you know the way to solve this thing needs to somehow involve this intermediate quantity. So what you could try to do is you could try to recover that intermediate quantity from the hidden states of the neural networks. If it doesn't go via that intermediate quantity, you can be reasonably sure it only does this sort of interpolation trick. So, you know, I I think there's still, the, the jury's still out, but my bet is also that it's just, it's just kind of a, yeah, an interpolation trickery. Not trickery, it's cool, but still. Well, this trickery thing is quite a recurring theme it all comes down to this philosophical discussion of what does it mean to understand? You said yourself, when you deal with students, it's so easy to memorize things. And as an observer, you can't tell the difference. Yes. Yeah, there, there is this notion of understanding, like what does it mean to understand? And there is the other notion of do we need this understanding? Like given that understanding might be something we could define that AI doesn't yet have, do we need it to reach AGI? And there are people, you know, that, that argue something like AI doesn't understand anything yet. Therefore it can't sort of evolve into AGI, but I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure understanding is a real thing. And I also, I'm not so sure if it is a real thing that it's necessary to build something you would call AGI. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I'm, I'm trying to remember where, where does this come from? Because understanding is something that the GoFi people talk about all the time. So Walid Saber made the argument that natural language understanding is not the same thing as processing. And in their conception, it's all about abstraction. So understanding is about having some abstract model of the world and ha- having some explicit knowledge and being able to reason over it. Of course. I mean, of of course, it makes total sense to make that argument, right? It makes total, because you as a human, you look at yourself and you think, well, am I really just doing forward prop of some pattern to some pattern? Probably not. I do like, I have some internal voice in my head that speaks to me. And if I get, you know, if I encounter a hard problem, I kind of sit down and I'm like, so clearly there is more going on in our heads than or seemingly more going on than simple forward prop through a neural network, right? So it it does make total sense to make the argument that, you know, we do something like understanding the machines don't yet. However, as I, as I said, I'm not sure that this understanding thing is actually something very different from what the neural networks are doing. And I'm not sure that we need uh, this different thing, if it exists, to build AGI, and there, there is the, the the jury's still out. So my argument that I'm going to make that I not necessarily fully agree with, but that I could see as a possibility, is that what we lack so far is maybe just multimodality. And what I mean by that is, you know, Walid Saba criticizes something like GPT three by saying, "Oh, it doesn't know. The elephant doesn't fit in the box." right? It's, you know, look at it. 
He doesn't even know that, right? But of course, it all it sees is text, right? How, from text, how, how it's supposed to feel. But we as humans, we are incredibly multimodal. We have we have touch, we have gravity, we have movement, right? All of these are, are sensory sensors that that we input into our brain. And our brain is incredibly good at connecting these different modalities to each other. And we understand, right, what it means to, for the elephant to not fit into a small box, because we, as a kid, maybe have had the experience of squeezing ourselves into like a, a cardboard box. We have had the experience of trying to, you know, pack some luggage with too many clothes and, and just, you know, squeezing that thing in there. We, and if, if you say, I understand what it means to fit into a box, I'm like, you can make a strong case that all that means is that you've had these multimodal experience of these things happening coupled with the language input while well, doesn't fit into it, right? <laughs> and and so, so I'm not sure that understanding cannot arise from simply extending what we have right now to multimodality. It's almost as if you're making the argument that we have a heterogeneous brain. So we have specialization units in our brain for doing different modalities and being able to abstract a concept such that it can be represented in all of these different modalities and we can do some kind of message passing between those parts of the brain. It, that's what understanding is to you. I'm not saying that's what it is. What I'm saying, you, but you, you hit the correct point. I'm saying that I am not convinced that what these people call understanding, you know, that necessary component that machines don't yet have, cannot simply arise from scaling what we have right now to different modalities, right? And uh, yeah, so, so it's it's very much along the line of what like Connor Lee would say, and and he makes a good point, namely that. If these people claim there is something like understanding, show, show it to me, show me where in the brain, right? Is there something that, you know, clearly does something like this reasoning, like symbolic, where in the brain is the structure that doesn't do this sort of forward propagation of signal? Because you can't find, you can find very complex neurons, right? With, you know, you know, lateral suppression and whatnot and, and extremely complex but they're all just signal processing so so I, i'm not representing connor accurately right here but he he has this this point where he says these people complain that we need this sort of understanding reasoning whatever but never do they tell you where in the brain that is never do they actually define clearly you know what's what's happening there yeah, I just don't like this multimodal argument because I think it's possible to understand just in the language domain. I know, you know, Connor and, and you might not agree with that, but there is a subjective experience of what is it like to understand. And it's surprisingly unambiguous. When you understand something, it means that you can make inferences and deductions and you can communicate it to someone else. Yes. Though, again, under, for example, understanding that, you know, an elephant doesn't fit into a suitcase is 
something that might like that thing might arise from multimodality. And I'm not sure there is a case of understanding that doesn't arise from multimodality. Maybe you can make the point about math, like very abstract math, but I'm not so sure because that's, that's super, that's like very out there, right? From all the things that humans understand going into, oh, I'm going to prove, I don't know, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. That is, that is out there. But on the elephant thing, I think you're making the argument that if you had access to multimodal perception, you would just see lots of examples of elephants being much bigger than boxes. And of course they wouldn't fit in a box, but Waleed Sabah would say that just with very basic transitive reasoning, you would also be able to deduce that an elephant wouldn't fit in a box. Of course, but maybe that is because you've had a rich experience of what it means to not fit into something. And you've had a rich experience of this transitive property of fitting, right? Like you have had the experience of packing something into a box and then packing that box into a bigger box. You have done it. You have touched it. You have physically moved the object and seen it with your eyes and felt, you know, your hands going in there and so on. You, you have physically experienced this transitive property of, of fitting, whereas a language model has never had that. Interesting. So taking that subject a little bit further. We are talking with this gentleman, Professor Mark Bishop in February, and he's got a paper out called Artificial Intelligence is Stupid and Causal Reasoning Won't Fix It. Now, the reason why I think you folks should go and read this paper is he really covers the entire scene of AI and deep learning and also the the causal reasoning stuff. So the kind of things that Judea Pearl and Gary Marcus talks about. And so he starts off talking about neural computing and some of the limitations of deep learning and, and learning embeddings and so on and variational autoencoders. And then we get down to causal reasoning and what it means to understand. One of the interesting things is that he invokes this Chinese room, which is from John Searle. He came up with this thought experiment called the Chinese room, where imagine you were an English person and you're inside this room and you had these people passing you little bits of paper with Chinese written on and you don't understand Chinese, but someone also gives you the rules. So you have all of the rules written down and you know how to answer questions in Chinese because you know which symbols to manipulate and so on and you you give the answers out and people outside of that room think that you've understood, right? but you haven't understood. It's correct. People would say that once they knew of the room and so on, like people would say you've understood and then you'd say, look, it's all a trick. It's a, it's a room and I'm just doing this, right? Yeah, but, but again, that is, that is very, like you're not a Chinese room as a human. Clearly you don't simply do rules into rules, like you have some sort of abstraction and reasoning capability. But again, given, for example, transformers, they don't remember every single training data point, right? They do extract patterns from those data points and they do sort of use those patterns and use them transitively. So they use the rules of grammar to stitch together sentences and so on. I, I just, I don't see Again, I don't necessarily, I'm not arguing for this. I just say there is a case to be made that that 
will ultimately result in something you, you call understanding. And well, okay, let's say I talk to you, right? And I would say you understand things, but then some neurosurgeon comes in and says like, look, it's all a trick. There is this structure in the brain and he's just recalling the memory from here. And he's just, you know, using this neuron and this neuron does this. And it, he's not really understanding. He's just saying the things that the brain, you know, outputs. And, you know, <laughs> can't I make the same argument? Well, yeah, you, you can. The, the question is, do we even need to have understanding? Because one of the things I want to get away from a little bit is very quickly, these discussions get into philosophy of mind and they get into the esoterics of consciousness and so on. And I think you're making quite an interesting point, which is that, well, it doesn't really matter for all intents and purposes. If it appears to understand, then who cares if it's an illusion? Because we're getting into this this concept of as a human, what does it mean to understand? And is there a gap? This is what Mark talks about in his paper. So he says at the end that he thinks that even these causal reasoning approaches, they go one step further. I mean, ultimately what, what he's, what he concludes with, it, it, he builds up this case that understanding is needed. And there is this kind of cohort of people coming from the, the causality angle saying we have the answer, right? Causality is the answer. If you, if you program causality into your ML systems, that will, that will solve that problem. And it is true that using causality, you can solve a whole bunch of problems that you couldn't solve before, but this, this paper is basically saying, well, yes, you've made one step, but you still not, you ha still haven't solved the problem. The, the, the understanding question is still here. You've done nothing to address that. Yeah. So he says, no matter how sophisticated the computation is, how fast the CPU is, or how great the storage of the computing machine is, there remains an unbridgeable gap, which is the so-called humanity gap between the engineered problem solving ability of a machine and the general problem solving ability of man. And this is basically what John Searle said. He said that this kind of computationism ideology will never really get you to understand it. Although there have been, <laughs> there, there have been a lot of um, criticisms to that recently. So you can take a level of abstraction up and you can say, well, maybe the entire system, maybe the building and the inputs and the outputs and the person inside the building, maybe that system constitutes some level of understanding. Yeah, well, this, this, so I have two points. I think that the one point I've, I've already made, which is that it is, it is not even, even if humans do something like understanding, it doesn't mean that that's a necessary component of AGI. It, it does. It is a necessary component. If we want to build a artificial human, it is not a necessary component. If we want to build an artificially, generally intelligent machine. These are two different things. And I think it's a good point to make, right? Saying like, look, humans do this thing. Let's take that for granted. Uh, because even though I doubt that, like that humans do this distinct thing, but let's say human do this thing, uh, machine doesn't do this thing. Therefore machine cannot be, and here's the distinction that what they say, what they want or what they need to say is machine cannot be like human. Okay. But machine cannot be artificially generally intelligent only if you define AGI in terms of, you know, acts exactly as a acts, not only as a human does, 
but also in a way, like achieves its conclusions in a way as the human does. There's nothing that says AGI can't use a different method to, to solve its problems and, or needs this understanding, whatever it is. And the second thing is that this is exactly like the uh, creationism, intelligent design crowd. You know, every time they, they go like, well, this system here is irreducibly complex. If you, you know, there, there is, you know, evolution can only explain so much. There will always be a gap to, for that evolution cannot explain. And it, it, it reminds me too much of, you know, this, this thing. And as you said, you, you bring up a good point. Like if a human understands something, certainly a building with a human in it understands the same thing. And so, so is, is, is the building now understanding? Like it's, it seems to be a bit too human centric and a bit a bit more like like what someone wants to arrive at a conclusion someone wants to arrive at than a conclusion that is that is well reasoned if you have any questions for professor mark bishop let us know because he will be on the podcast in uh, february okay oh god it's ruined my, my... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that well, his first action will be to just perma mute me. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at no. He's he's a, a very nice chap. So the next thing is we wanted to talk about this paper by Professor Pedro Domingos. Pedro is reasonably well known lately, if you're on Twitter, for reasons which need not detain us. But so the paper is called Every Model Learned by Gradient Descent is Approximately a Kernel Machine. So he says in the abstract that deep learning's success is often attributed to its ability to automatically discover new representations of the data rather than relying on handcrafted features. And deep learning is sold as representation learning. You can essentially learn a, a, a really generalizable representation of your data and that will uh, work on previously unseen data. And if they are equivalent to kernel machines, we all know, we spoke about this on our kernel methods episode, a kernel is just an inner product of your training data, right? Which means all you're doing is memorizing your training data. I, the, the ghost of Alex will come visit you tonight and scream at you for doing such a terrible job. I, I can't do a better job at it. Just saying, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there are, there are a couple of ingredients right here. So the claim he makes is that, you know, in a kernel machine, what you do essentially is you, you simply, a kernel machine always explicitly has the training data set as part of the algorithm. So in, in a kernel machine, what, what you would do is you would keep the, the training data set around at least a part of the training data set, namely the, the support vectors, right? But these are actual data points that you keep around for the algorithm to work, right? The algorithm relies on you remembering these training data points. And then the kernel sort of tells you how to measure the distance of any new point to these training data points. That's, that's what the kernel tells you. And the, the paper here makes the claim that a deep learning 
is essentially the same thing if the deep learning is learned with gradient descent. So gradient descent is a necessary component here. So the, the claim from what I can gather, and I have not had a deep look at this paper yet, so I, I don't want to say too much, though I can, I can probably try to trash it a bit. No, this is a joke. That, that's what a conference reviewer would do. I've read a bit of the abstract. I don't like it. So <laughs> You would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'm pretty sure most a uh, lot of conference reviewers get about that far in, into a paper. But so so the, the, the argument here is that even though we think we're learning these deep neural networks, ultimately, ultimately what they just do is they learn a superposition of the training data as a kernel machine does. Like they, they kind of keep important training data points around and then by virtue of how the neural network is structured as a neural network, right? And the specific architecture it has, that sort of constitutes the kernel function that sort of tells you how to, to measure distances uh, between these data points. But you don't, you just, you don't keep them around explicitly, but you do keep them around sort of in the, in the weights and, and gradient descent is the necessary ingredient here to make that claim work, which I, I can believe that as I said, I haven't read the paper. So what I'm going to guess is that there is an, an argument, a mathematical argument that shows this equivalence. But I would, what I would also guess is that you can probably extend that to a lot more than deep neural networks. You can, you can go say, I don't know, random forests or kernel machines if they're learned with or are they learned with gradients? I don't know. But you, you could probably make the same argument or the same type of argument for a lot of architectures and ultimately uh, sort of show that any, everything is equivalent to everything else because ultimately they do learn a decision function from training data. So at some point, the training data needs to come into the process, right? And whether or not they're remembered explicitly or implicitly, once you wash that away, you might be able to make anything into anything. Okay, well, though, though there might be a much deeper connection here than what I'm saying right now. I'm just, I'm sort of, sort of, sort of trying to, to take a jab at it. Okay, well, if you folks are interested in Yannick doing a deep dive on Pedro's paper, or indeed having Pedro on the podcast, then let us know in the comments. But one interesting thing that, that did come up is SVMs and kernel methods that they're known as non-parametric models. And a bit of an intuition there is the parametric bit means in deep learning, you have all of these weights that you learn. They're the, they're the parameters. And in these kernel methods, in these non-parametric models, the data basically is the model. So that's the reason for the, you know, the two different descriptions there. So the next one is our friend Yoshia Benjo. We did a, a really interesting street talk on his ICLR talk, talking all about the consciousness prior. He has this idea that you can create a kind of, you know, set of inductive priors for deep learning that will learn a sparse factor graph of how things are related to each other. And um, you could also learn causal relationships between those semantic objects. And he thinks that that is the future of AI. So it's quite interesting. We were saying this earlier that Yoshia Benjo is now a fully signed up member of the GoFi initiative. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go quite, quite as far to claim that, but, but Benjo has been always much like, much like Hinton, I believe, always coming from the very 
practical side, from a neuroscientific side, from sort of a, a cognitive science side, and just has always been trying to actually build these sort of priors that humans naturally have or that brains naturally have into these models. I mean, think about capsule networks by, by Hinton. These are, this is Hinton sort of trying to think about what goes on in, in the brain in, and, and, and make an explicit model based on that, that mixes the sort of, you know, neural things that we have with, with these, these, these priors and capsule networks, I think is, is an awesome example of that. And Benjo has been doing one form of another, one form or another of this for a long time. Awesome. Okay. So that paper is called inductive biases for deep learning of high level cognition. It was out on the 7th of December. So check that out. Who is Anna Rogers? Let's click on this. So she is a postdoctoral associate at the university of Copenhagen. She's interested in natural language processing and working on interpretability and, and so on. So that's super interesting. So she had a paper out on the gradient talking about a survey, which she's just written of the Bertology literature. Cool. I think, I think I had that previous paper as a video on my channel, the, when Bert plays the lottery, all tickets are winning. Oh yes. So what was your take on that? Well, first lesson, never title a video like this because a whole lot of people show up trying to win the lottery and being terribly disappointed when once they realize it's not about winning the lottery. I, I don't, I honestly don't fully remember what exactly the claim of the paper was. So, but it, it did investigate, I believe it investigated fine tuning of Bert and sort of pruning the, the different heads. And I believe what it found was sort of that it could prune in a lot of ways and still fine tune to good performance. And that that's kind of where the title all tickets are winning comes from. Right. Interesting. But there, there are some sections here talking about how stable are the good sub networks found across random initializations and across different tasks. So things like some of the different glue tasks. And I remember all of these graphics. I, I do not remember the conclusions. Cause one interesting thing was there's a graph here showing, um, different types of patterns on the self-attention networks, self-attention yeah. pattern types. Yeah. It says it well, under the graph. So Kovalira et al 2019. Mm -hmm. Revealing the dark secrets of Bert. Okay. So, so this is quite interesting. So there are roughly four types of patterns. So, um, for those of you who watch Simon Cornbliff, uh, he, he used quite an interesting, um, way of looking at the evolution of uh, representations and neural networks. And you'll recognize that characteristic block pattern from that. So these folks looked at different types of self attention patterns and there are vertical patterns and diagonal patterns and vertical and diagonal block patterns and heterogeneous patterns. And, um, Rogers said here that the heterogeneous pattern, if, if you're actually learning anything about language, you, you would kind of want it to be heterogeneous. 
And what they did was they trained a CNN classifier on this self-attention matrix to, you know, go ahead and and, and see what kind of um, patterns, activation patterns there are on different networks trained for different downstream tasks. And then they've done a kind of visualization here showing what the kind of proportion of those different activation patterns are. And presumably you want there to be more heterogeneous because that means it's actually doing something interesting. I'm not so sure. Like, <laughs> why? Like if there is, if there is an, you know, a central piece of like a word that's very important, like you need to entity link and it seems okay that all the attention is on this token that is the entity. Like, you, you know, I'm I'm not not convinced that heterogeneous doesn't just mean you have no clue what you're doing. Maybe I <laughs> <laughs> could be wrong. That's the problem with Bertology, isn't it? We we just don't know. But yeah, so her conclusion was that the lottery ticket hypothesis holds when using magnitude pruning on BERT. Good subnetworks can be retrained to reach full model performance. Structured pruning tells a different story. So we find that pruning most of the subnetworks of BERT using this method results in similar performance between good, random, and bad subnetworks. So the experiments suggest that BERT's high performance does not come from specific linguistic knowledge uniquely encoded in the pre-trained weights of specific BERT's components. Otherwise, the good subnetworks would have been stable across random seeds. Anyway, it was a really interesting article, so definitely go and check that out. Not too much news in the ML world. <laughs> no. The other thing we're going to talk about is Gary Marcus chaired a really interesting conversation with loads of luminaries over in Montreal at the, the, the institute that they have over there. And Gary kind of started off by saying something quite interesting. AI systems that understand the variables they manipulate, including language perception and action, we should try to understand what understanding itself means. Um, we want systems that can capture causality, capture how the world works, understand abstract actions, reason and plan, explain what happened and generalize out of distribution. This is just stunning convergence, I believe. And uh, one more example, Jürgen Schmidhuber and uh, some collaborators just had a paper uh, earlier this month um, arguing for a compositional approach to AI in terms of symbol-like representations. And he said that they said that was fundamental um, in realizing human level generalization. So, you know, we spent the last eight years arguing about whether we need these things. And I think we now all agree or almost all agree. He really thinks that there's been a convergence because Gary Marcus was always the pariah. He was the troll that everyone really uh, hated because he was saying, you know, you're all wrong. It's all reasoning and this, that and the other. And actually that there, there, there seems to be a real convergence now, which Gary points out. So even uh, Schmidhuber in his paper, which was the binding problem in artificial neural networks. Even he was talking about the need for causal reasoning and the sub-symbolic processing and so on. And of course, we've spoken about this paper from uh, Bengio saying the same thing. So it's got to the point now where that's not really a controversial thing to say anymore. <laughs> you won't get cancelled for it. You won't get cancelled for it. So Gary Marcus has been allowed back into the, the fold. Or his opinions but, are no longer, you know, the Overton window is now kind of, you know, it's including Gary Marcus. You're, you're allowed, yeah, you're allowed to be a reasonist <laughs> in today's AI community. No, but I, I mean, these, these are valid criticisms and they, you know, there have always been, I, I think the outliers have more been the neural networkers, I guess, until recently, but there, there, there's always this criticism of, your neural network can't do understanding. It doesn't explicitly reason over symbols and so on. So 
And the answer to that is yes, probably it doesn't, though I'm not sure what an attention mechanism does. Like, could very well reason over symbols. You don't know. Uh, but, the, sorry, the answer to that is their thing doesn't understand either. Yeah, well... <laughs> Well, but you, you can't, like, you can't, you, like, the criticism is valid even if you can say, you too. <laughs> you more. <laughs> you more. <laughs> yeah, though, though, yes, though, though the, yeah, the, the back argument is more like, yeah, and, you know, taste your own medicine and tell me where, you know, where in the brain that happens. And, you know, where, where there is this entirely distinct part because that, I, I think that can't be pointed out so far, and and as I said all, all, all of before, I'm not I'm not so sure, even though the criticism is sounds valid, I'm not so sure it's necessary. Okay, so there was a really interesting bit by Rich Sutton. So I've not really heard him speak much before, so it's quite an interesting experience for me to hear him speak. David Marr, the neuroscientist and vision researcher David Marr, who died in 1980 at the age of 35. What he's most known for is the three-level hypothesis, which is um, that uh, any information processing system must be understood at three levels, sort of a computational theory level about the problem, and breaking down into algorithms and hardware implementations. The computational theory level is what I want you to really focus on. Uh, so what is the goal of the computation. That's what we look at in computational theory. Uh, what are the purposes? Why is it appropriate to, to compute certain things rather than other things? Whereas um, next level down, the middle level is uh, how would that be done? Which representations and which algorithms would be used? And uh, finally, the lower level is again, how, but how physically could it be done? So David Marr liked to emphasize the computational theory level. He thought it was the most important and at the same time, the most neglected. And I think it's still true uh, in neuroscience that we are missing sort of a, a high level understanding of the, the goal and the purposes of the overall uh, mind. Uh, it's also true in artificial intelligence, but perhaps more surprisingly in AI, uh, but there's really very little computational theory in, in, in Mars sense in AI. So for example, in AI textbooks, they will often decline to define the problem of intelligence. It's important always to understand the problem before you approach the solution. And other ideas, production rules, Bayes updating, subsumption, gradient descent, dynamic system theory, all these are hows, they're not what's. They don't characterize the overall problem. So then that brings me to my thesis that reinforcement learning is the first computational theory of intelligence. Reinforcement learning is explicit about the goal, about the what's and the why's. So according to reinforcement learning, the goal is to maximize an arbitrary reward signal. And to this end, the agent has to compute a policy, a value function, and a generative model. And each of these contributes in a clear way uh, to maximizing reward. And each is a clear what. The value function, for example, is a function from states to a prediction of the future reward. And he cited that there are three levels at which information uh, processing can be understood. The top level is computational theory. The middle level is the representation and the algorithm. And the third level is hardware implementation. So the, the nub of what he is saying is that almost all of the, the folks at the moment, whether it's you know causal people, symbolic people, neural networkers, they are all at that middle tier. And he thinks that he's sitting at the top of the tree because as a reinforcement learning person, he has this unifying computational paradigm 
And a big part of this is the, the what's not the how's. So he thinks at his level, it, it comes back to our conversation that we had on Chalet's measure of intelligence, right? We, we spoke about Hutter's universal conception of intelligence. And that was basically, it's what DeepMind teach to kids at UCL. They teach Hutter's conception, which is that in intelligence is basically an agent performing actions in a, in a variety of environments. Well, yes, though. Um, I don't agree with these. I mean, these levels of it can be understood. Yes, of course, like any computation can be understood. You can look at the hardware level, you can look at and so on. But I don't, I don't agree if this is in fact what, what he says here. I don't agree that RL has any, any claim to fame. Like it's, it's the most general, yes. But it also means that I can, I can frame any problem as an RL problem. I can frame a supervised learning problem as a reinforcement learning problem. And then presumably I'm on that same level, right? Like to understand why a computation is useful. Okay, why, why is the supervised learning useful? Because you can predict the labels, right? Why do you do this? Because I want to predict the label. You know, that, that you, you can always frame this as, as RL. And just because RL is the most general framework doesn't, I don't think it, it's uh, any more powerful. It's like the higher level programming languages aren't more powerful than the lower level programming languages, just because you, you have different levels of abstraction. I know, because it, it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that, because Rich Sutton is from DeepMind, isn't he? So clearly he's going to advocate for a theory of intelligence, which makes DeepMind look good. And I was really shocked when I first read Francois Chalet's Measure of Intelligence paper, because he basically said that the most important thing is generalization. The algorithms that have come from DeepMind, whether it's AlphaGo or MuZero and so on, they're really clever. I mean, architecturally, these folks are amazing that they've come up with a way of gluing together all of these different ideas. They've effectively combined searching and learning, and they have achieved things that, that, that are wonderful by throwing loads of computation at it. They, they've achieved a high level of skill, but it's not efficient. The information conversion ratio is very low and there is zero generalization. So I'm not surprised that he's chosen this particular measure of intelligence. Yeah, I mean, you can always construct something that you're at the top, especially if you're deep mind, that's an easy task, right? Yeah, so this is not, yeah, as you say, like deep mind does awesome things, like more more awesome than I than we will ever do you know yeah there's there's some there's there's really awesome talent at at deep mind and y yes the algorithms they come up with ultimately they are super duper narrow and um, i guess the question is how well could these algorithms be ported uh, to some other problem and there the answer is you know unfortunately also not super easy like like i, I can't just take alpha fold and being a normal software engineer, maybe a bit of an ML engineer, I couldn't straightforwardly use that to solve, I don't know, a traffic a traffic jam problem or, or something like this, even though that's, it appears to be fairly close in sort of the problem domain. Even their, their most general algorithm or some of their most general algorithms like, like deep Q learning or maybe mu zero, right? Which doesn't even need an internal simulator. 
even those they they rely on very very tight constraints right you need to be in this you need to be in this state where you can simulate data infinitely restart at will always have the same actions available the input is always in its nice shape and so on it, it's it so the the skill needed to transfer the algorithm to another problem is considerable and even then it might not be possible you might only be able to you know transfer the idea of the algorithm so essentially what Cholet would argue and what I, I argue here too is that the the intelligent bit is is in the engineers right having the ideas of let's combine learning with search in some way yeah but what's interesting there is how much of that forms a universal model of AI computation, because it seems quite general. Even with AlphaFold, they're they're potentially using Max Welling's you know SE3 transformer, and yeah, there's some domain knowledge built into the system there. But it's still largely a blank slate in the sense that it could be applied to almost anything. You just need to be very very smart. Yeah, that's the point, right? You need to be smart in the in the input. Like, of course, reinforcement learning as a framework applies to anything. That's that's what I was saying initially, right? So RL as there's an agent, there's a world, there is a reward signal that I can frame almost any problem in that setting. So yes, it is like all the ultimate, the ultimate model of computation. However, just because you can frame anything, you know, in Wikipedia, there's this game where you always take the, the first non non-italic non-in-bracket link right and you always click that and from like i think from every page you ultimately get to philosophy but it doesn't help when when you ask me you know what's you know where's uh or what's what's moscow and i say philosophy like it doesn't even though it <laughs> might be correct in some membership graph it is not very helpful okay so there was uh, another really interesting uh, person interviewed. So I'm sure you've heard of Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. We've had so many conversations when we talk about Yoshia Bengio. Yeah, so everyone talks about this dichotomy of system one, system two, and the, the GoFi people think that their stuff is system two. Reinforcement learning people think that planning is system two. And Daniel Kahneman said that originally when he when he came up with this conception, he he kind of thought about it differently. I should talk about two systems. I, I seem to be identified with the idea of two systems, system one and system two, although they're not my idea, but I did write a book that uh, described them. And as quite a few of you I'm sure know, uh, we talk about the contrast between one system that works fast, another that works slow. The main difference between system one and system two, as I described them, was that system one is something that happens to you. You are not active. The thought that the words come to you, the ideas come to you, the emotions come to you, they happen to you, you do not do them. And the essential distinction that I was drawing uh, between the two systems was really that one, uh, something that happens to you and something that you do. High level of skills in my description of, of things were absolutely in system one. Anything that we can do automatically, anything that happens associatively is in system one. Uh, operations of system one tend to be parallel. Operations of system two tend to be serial. 
And this idea of two systems may have been adopted uh, more than it should have been. It seemed to be identified with the distinction between symbolic and non-symbolic, where system one is non-symbolic and system two is symbolic one that does the reasoning. Uh, and there is, I had a very similar view myself when you look at what machine learning does, it reminds you of that black box that produces miraculously and quite fast, produces very complicated responses or, or responses in very complicated situations. So it's true that anything, any activity that we would describe as non-symbolic, I think does belong to system one. But system one, I think cannot be described as a non-symbolic. For one thing, uh, it's, it's much too complicated and rich for that. It knows language for one thing. Intuitive thoughts are in language. Uh, the most interesting component of system one, the basic component as I conceive of that notion, is that it holds a representation of the world. And, and the representation that actually allows something that resembles a simulation of the world. As I describe it, we, we live with that representation of the world and most of the time we are in what I call the valley of the normal. There are events that we positively expect, there are events that surprise us, but most of what happens to us neither surprises us nor is it expected. What I'm going to, do, to say next will not surprise you, but you didn't actually expect it. So there is that model that compares, that accepts many, many events as normal continuations of what happens, but it rejects some. And it distinguishes what is surprising from what is normal. That's very difficult to describe in terms of symbolic or non-symbolic. Certainly what happens is a lot of counterfactual thinking is in fact system one thinking because surprise is something that happens automatically. You're surprised when something that happens is not normal, is not expected. And that forces common sense and causality to be in system one and not in system two. So I wanted just to uh, clarify the language a bit that it seems to me that uh, the association of system two specifically with symbolic and system one with non-symbolic. Uh, I really enjoy hearing those two systems mentioned in conversations about AI, but I'm not sure that they're always used as precisely as they should be. He thought that system one is something that happens to you. System two is something that you do. That's, yeah, that's quite a, a smart conception though. I think the, the crucial word in that sentence, interestingly enough, is you. Like, what is you, right? Like it's it's almost like he 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 you know by defining you you automatically define what system one and system two. It, clearly, he sees the you like the and I, I don't know coming you know if 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 like the, the Buddhists would go into this ego, right? The ego is an illusion thing and so on, and and they 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 are all about you have this notion of this you, but doesn't actually exist. 
so I guess Kahneman here framing it like this clearly sees the you as sort of like sitting on top of your unconscious, right? Of your or subconscious, right? And the system one is this, you know, this subconscious, it happens to you, means the computation is somewhere else. So the computation is outside of you in some maybe other part of your brain, right? And then it happens to you, meaning that, you know, it's at the end of the computation, the result is sent to you, to, to, the, to the sort of conscious part of your brain, whereas system two is what you do. It means that maybe it, it's going on inside that whatever you is. But it, it entirely, this entirely now hinges on the definition of you. What is you? And uh, yeah, yeah, philosophy. <laughs> I know everything seems to go there quite quickly, as you say. The, the other thing that fascinated me is, reminded me a lot of the conversation that we had with Professor Carl Friston. He says that most of the time that we are in the valley of the normal, that there are events that we positively expect and there are events that surprise us, but most of what happens to us neither surprises us nor is it expected. What he's going to say, he said in the next few minutes, will not surprise you, but you didn't um, actually expect it. So in, in Professor Friston's conception, he has this wonderful idea that we all have a generative model. And of course we do. We, we have the simulation, like the matrix going on in our brains, and we're always running different simulations. And even as, as we talk with each other now, we have some idea of what's expected, and we're trying to minimize surprise. And Friston basically says that we have a Bayesian brain. We're constantly trying to minimize surprise, which is basically, you know, kind of predictive error between these external sensory states and our internal states. And we have this kind of entropy and, and surprise that we are continuously updating. So why don't we do that in machine learning? Yes. So this, this here, if, if I had to name a component that was still missing from our today's AI systems, it would not be a symbolic reasoning component. If I, if I had to name one, it would be a, an internal generative model. At, and this could be at an abstract level, like it doesn't need to be at, at the at base level of reality, but like some sort of forward generative model that you have internally seems, seems like something that we don't yet do. And I also don't see how it can sort of arise. I can see how something like reasoning can sort of arise from, from the kind of neural computation that we do. I, I don't necessarily see how something like planning over a, a internal generative model can just happen and maybe we need to build that in. And that being said, there have, have, have been a lot of RL systems that have tried to have such an explicit system with more or less success, mostly less success. It tends to be incredibly painful to, you know, build that in to somebody to backprop through it. And then what you do, if it's not super accurate Yeah, I, I think Hari had this, this, this problem as well, where you say, okay, what, what if I can't trust my model and so on this? Yeah. And, and this, this notion of surprises is, is something I would definitely agree with. And it, it reminds me of a, a talk I heard by Jordan Peterson, who said something like, if, if you're going in a car and you go from A to B, like you don't even think you just you don't think I'm in a car and there's an engine and blah 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 blah. You, you just think I'm going from A to B. 
the entire complexity of the car and of the world around you, it just vanishes because everything is happening according to what you expect. And here he says something interesting is, is that it's not that you expect every single detail, right? If, if I drive somewhere and I don't really know where I'm going, but I don't care, right? That, like that house that is by, it might not match my internal simulator, but it's irrelevant, right? Because my internal simulator, it operates at sort of the things that should be relevant. And the, the biggest category for, for your brain is the things that are irrelevant. So if you're in the car going from A to B, almost everything is irrelevant because your internal simulator tells you everything's going fine. But then someone bumps into you and all of a sudden what the world is doesn't match anymore with what your simulator tells you you should be experiencing. Like your simulator tells you you should be just going like this. Uh, but the world tells you like bang. And, <laughs> and now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, complexity arises in your brain and all of a sudden the car is now a car because it's broken right and and all of the complexity of the car gets into your mind that wasn't there before so this this notion of surprise and and you you thinking like your, your system kicking in when something surprises you and so on that is something i very much agree with and something we don't do something like alpha go plans every step right? It, like they can modulate the time a bit, I think, and they have some confidence measure, but still like mu zero, it plans every, every step. It just plans whatever, a hundred steps, a hundred times, right? But most of what you do is you don't plan at all until you reach something where there's complexity, then you plan a lot. And that depends on that internal simulator you have. And that's something I think we're still missing. Does this imply that we should have a Bayesian system? Because cause if you think about it, the, the really powerful thing with um, uh, Bayesian systems is that you have kind of irregularly sampled data in the, in the real world. So you can, when you encounter entropy, when you actually need to do some thinking, then you can go and sample in that space. And it seems to be a really efficient way of working. Because you said yourself, I don't know how well this applies to, you know, to current deep learning methods, but at the moment, you have to take a trajectory through this policy. And why would you encounter anything that surprised you in, in, in that case? Well, okay, I'm, I'm never sure about this, this whole Bayesian stuff because I'm fairly convinced our brains aren't, aren't as Bayesian as we would like to think. Like I don't, I don't keep the entire distribution of things in my brain at all times. Like I don't, I don't, right? I have like the, I've the, the most likely thing and maybe one other thing that I consider, right? And, and <laughs> you know, when I do planning, I do explicit planning over these things. I don't do planning over the distributions of things. And I don't update my prior according to Bayes rule. I, you know, I do something much more dumb. So I, I don't think we, it might be that we get really good performance by doing Bayesian stuff. Christoph Koch also spoke at the event. So the point I'm trying to make here is that these massive resources re reveal brains made out of uh, amazing complexity, none of which is reflected in any uh, machine learning models or in any of the current models of AI. Uh, what what this uh, 
reveals, including the, the connectomes, as we are now getting both uh, the complete connectomes of cubic millimeters of tissue, both in the mouse and in the, in the humans, they reveal that these brains are, are not only made out of millions or billions of neurons and glia cells, not just excitatory and inhibitory cells, but a, a fantastic, just a, a mind-blowing variety of cell types on the order of now we estimate a thousand different cell types, neuronal cell types that differ by the developmental origin, that differ by the genes they express, the layer in which their cell bodies is located, which is critical to understand anything in cortex, the addresses they send the information to, that differ in the synaptic architecture, in the, the, in the dendritic trees, in the, um, in the electrophysiological functions, etc. So we have, you know, highly heterogeneous individual components, roughly a thousand times, that combine both the functionality of computation and memory, so very different than our current, you know, uh, VLSI hardware, into these densely interwoven networks with fan in and fan out on the order of 10,000. All right, so this really exceeds anything that science has ever, has ever studied with these highly heterogeneous components on the order of a thousand with, with connectivity on the order of 10,000. The, the brain is the most highly organized piece of active matter in the, in the known universe. And if I look at the state of the art, you know, deep neural networks, they're really very impoverished and by, um, A, they're very impoverished. So by and large, they have, you know, halfway rectified or, you know, gain controlled saturating units. So two or three different types compared to a thousand different types that we see in the brain. And so, Understanding brains and their pathologies uh, is a project probably that's going to take us a century or two. The dirty secret of my field is that we don't like to talk about. We have a connector with a complete wiring diagram of C. elegans since 1986. Okay, that's the third of a century. There's still no general purpose integ uh, integrated model of, of, of its three or two neurons, right? And here we're trying to understand the 16 billion neurons that make up the, and the, and the human uh, brain. Brains primarily provide existence proof that adaptive intelligence is possible in physical hardware. I mean, the that's a general argument especially coming from neuroscientists that the brain is so much more complex than our neural networks even the individual neuron is so much more intriguing and complex than simply forward problem like there is effects like you know long-term potentiation and and i don't know you know dendrites going over other dendrites and synapses going over other synapses you know stopping these synapses and and crazy stuff going on in even in the individual neuron level and often these neuroscientists will say something like you have no chance you know you you just building this one type of neuron this not even neuron it's like a, this linear algebra thing it's just and that's valid but again i would say if our goal was to build a brain we won't get there like we do but you never know if the things that we find in the brain are because they are necessary for, let's say, intelligence, or it's simply there because of other reasons. Namely, for example, maybe the brain needs to be immensely energy efficient. So maybe nature wanted to build a linear algebra machine, a neural network, but it, it said, well, that's just bloody inefficient. So I'm going to have to, you know, 
use, you know, this, I'm going to have to make a bunch of cells, you know, a bunch of cell types to work around these efficiency constraints that I have, but actually it would be better just to build the linear algebra machine. And, and it could be, you know, that, that the evolutionary process, you know, also the, the goal was, hey, I want to build the, the, the best system would be the linear algebra machine, but I can't build it in an evolutionary fashion, step by step by step by step. Right. So what, what I'll, what I'll do is I need a system that I can build step by step, and that's going to include these, you know, thousands of cell types. So I guess the, the my whole argument would be is yes, the brain is infinitely more complex than our neural networks. And that would be a problem if our goal was to build a human brain, but if our goal is to build something that is intelligent it might not be necessary to rebuild this complexity. Like we might get there using a different system. Yeah, well, there's quite an interesting point that Ezra made recently, which is that it, it is quite a good way to go to think about energy efficiency, because probably the human brain might not be required for intelligence, but maybe it's no coincidence that in nature, energy efficiency was deemed to be so important yeah, well, well, that's that's mainly because you know food is scarce, right? And uh, your brain needs to work when you're super duper hungry, and like especially then it needs to work, right? If you're out of food, you're out of energy, your brain still needs to to function. So it's no wonder that there is this energy efficient, this hyper focus on er energy efficiency. However, it's, we we don't necessarily need that, right? We can like, we can, <laughs> we can dig up oil and burn it like as much, like almost as much as we want. We, you know, it's, um, not, not saying that's a good thing, but our energy efficiency is not nearly as much a problem for, for our artificial neural networks as it is for the human brain. But I guess because uh, we we spoke to Simon Stringer as well from Oxford, and he was saying that there, you know, there's uh, predictive rate encoding and there's uh, pulses, and you know, Koch was basically saying that the existence proof of intelligence is the human brain. And you know, just wait a minute, guys, have a look at what's going on in the human brain. It's incredibly heterogeneous. It's incredibly complex. It it seems to imply that you guys are just barking up the wrong tree. Because how can having you know, ha how with such a monolithic feed forward architecture do you seriously expect to reproduce anything that resembles intelligence so I, it's a bit provocative but i think that's his point yeah i mean it's it's a good point but that's you know building building uh, the car by making the horse faster like there, there's yes the only intelligent thing we know has these properties doesn't mean that intelligence needs needs these properties Another really interesting speaker at that Montreal event was my favorite, Professor Kenneth Stanley. Um, he thinks that actually open-endedness is one of the most important um, features for building something that resembles what we call intelligence. Now, um, we've actually got a special edition with Kenneth coming up in the next couple of weeks. So rather than go into that now, I think we should uh, keep our powder dry and save it for later. We also had some reader mail, right? Yeah, so this chap, Marcus Carr, got in touch with us and he said, uh, I'm the smart aleck who bought up Capture Networks a couple of weeks ago in the comments. Yes, indeed. Uh, as a CS grad student, his focus right now is on hierarchical attention-based networks. 
and he's been deep in the weeds on this stuff lately. So um, regarding capsule networks, in the latest version, iterative routing has been dropped in favor of a transformer. Well, that's really interesting because there is a clear conceptual similarity between the transformer um, system and, and the routing. The authors induce sparsity with an additional loss term, and it seems to work very well for them. Hinton discussed it here, and I'll, I'll share the links in the description on the video. The lead author blogged it somewhere else, which I'll link as well. Regarding compositionality and priors, apparently there's a paper called Recursive Cortical Networks, worth a look. They are extremely sample efficient and have a hierarchical structure like that of capsule networks, with two key differences. One, they are Bayesian probabilistic uh, graphical models, not neural networks. And two, they encode a different prior, which is the fact that objects are enclosed shapes with surfaces and contours. Interesting. So for his thesis, he's building an RCN-like structure. Uh, again, I'll share the link, but with transformers. The key is to recast image recognition as a sequence-to-sequence-to-sequence -to -sequence -to -sequence problem. Instead of translating between tokens, they translate between sets of learned queries. And uh, Facebook's DETR uses learned queries too, but for a different purpose. Each set of queries constitutes a layer, and the attention matrices between them act as weights. The difference is that each neuron outputs a vector, not a scalar, and the weights are not fixed, but depend on the context. So in this formulation, self-attention serves as lateral connectivity, or competition within a layer, while cross-attention allows for dynamic routing between layers. Okay, so um, Marcus said that he doesn't plan to build this into any priors because he thinks the architecture is general enough to be used in multiple domains. For example, he's testing on both MNIST and the Penn Tree Bank. And with this setup, he says that you can also do neat things with attention masks, like fine-tune unsupervised models for classification. Anyway, he says he's a big fan of the channel and also uh, Connor's channel, Henry AI Labs. Shout out to Connor and uh, Yannick's channel too. So uh, Marcus, um, thank you so much for sending that. And here is your reply from Alex. Roll tape. So a couple of weeks ago on Machine Learning Street Talk, we were discussing capsule nets, the Jeffrey Hinton inspired reformulation of CNNs that you know kind of first came up about 10 years ago and started seeing pr practical implementations in the last couple of years. And in, in response to this segment, this, this guy by the name of Marcus Carr sent him an email. And this was a really good email. First thing he does, is he sets us straight. So people on the show, chiefly myself, were laughing at the idea of, you know, the, in the paper, capital networks with EM routing, they have this internal optimization loop on every forward pass of their network to handle their attention mechanism. And I remember thinking at the time, this just looks like a quick and dirty hack to try and get some kind of attention moving. Why didn't they just use self-attention or some flavor of self-attention? This, this was already, you know, in the, the zeitgeist at the time. And uh, Marcus points out that, well, that's exactly what they did. <laughs> you know, not long after the, the Capital Networks with EM and Attention paper released, they, they did indeed release a paper that had a more transformer flavor attention that works feed forward, no internal optimization loops. So that was that was our bad there for not for not researching deep enough. In our defense, we we do a hell of a lot of research for these these sessions to try and get up to speed, but you know, you do miss things and it's really hard to stay state of the art on this sort of stuff and unless you're very deeply involved. So particularly Mia Culpa, Marcus, thank you very much for sending me straight. I'm glad, I'm glad that sanity prevailed in the end though. He also he also points out to some other literature that's out there, specifically regarding recursive cortical networks. Recursive cortical networks, I, I don't understand too well, but basically they're a kind of uh 
probabilistic graphical model that looks at things like uh, closed sh shapes and curves instead of like banks of learned filters. But they still have that capsule net hierarchy of features kind of concept baked into them. One of the really cool things about these recursive cortical networks as well is that they are generative models. And one of the things that many folks in the community are talking about now, just like we did with Carl Friston and Max Welling, is it's a really cool idea to have a generative model of the world. And they're, an act, they're another area of active research. Full shout out to Marcus Carr. He's actually doing his thesis on a variant of these things where, where he's actually combining them with the idea of transformers. And it, like the idea sounds pretty cool there, you know, trying to find a new, more bright, more inclusive attention structure to model images as. Uh, to kind of quote him, I got it here. He says, the, the key is to recast image recognition as a seek to seek to seek problem. <laughs> Instead of translating between tokens, we translate between sets of learned queries. So if anyone out there is kind of interested in capital net research, you know, keep an eye out for Marcus Carr because this, this sounds like an interesting alternative approach that certainly gels with a lot of my experience playing around with capsule nets and, and alternative CNN architectures. You know, the attention-based stuff will be the way forward. And so I think this is really good. I think this is fantastic that these hierarchical representation or this hierarchical representation literature is an area of active research. Because if nothing else, the idea of capsule nets, you know, these that hierarchies of features build objects is worth investigating. It's a fantastic idea. The conceptualization of capsule nets as inverse computer graphics, right? If, if we could get a system working like that, it would, it may not transform academia and industry overnight, but it would transform it. We would suddenly have a very natural way of doing image recognition. Things like interpretability would just would, would suddenly be a lot easier to do, even in abstract settings. Things like understanding why faults were detected would be much easier to dissect. But I, I want to kind of expound on something here. We, Marcus and I personally, like I, I haven't discussed this with you know, Yannick or Tim, but like I, I think me and Marcus see things very similarly in that you know, there's potential here and it's, the problems are being worked out and that this is an exciting area worthy of continued research. My problem with capsule nets particularly, I'm gonna pick on capsule nets with the M routing here, but it's a problem that's common to the, what was it called? Capsule nets with dynamic routing, the, the earlier paper um, with vector value capsules. It's, it's not that you know, they're trying to build this system because I think the system's great. It's, it's what they claim that they're doing. Now, in the case of the, capsules with EM routing paper, they claim that because they're using four by four matrix value outputs, that they're doing things with the pose of, of objects within the image. And that's simply false. That's just not true. The matrices that they're using have no particular internal structure. So really this is just, you know, this is just a collection of equations being transformed arbitrarily. If, if they were acting in the way that Hinton claimed, there would only be six degrees of freedom in the system. Pose matrices only have six degrees of freedom, you know, three for translation, three for rotate, uh, three for rotation in three dimensions. And certainly, you know, it, it's not the case that just throwing four by four matrices in gives you these properties. 
in, in general, these sorts of geometric transformations live on things called Lie groups, which are they're kind of like smooth manifolds in the space of four by four matrices that can only take on restricted values because they do describe these physical things and therefore the, the range of potential values is, is rather limited. And my problem with a lot of this research is that these big claims are made, hey, we're doing this. You know, our, our whiz-bang new regularization technique works because of X, Y, and Z, but there's no proof of it. There's, there's no proof and there's no real evidence. Sometimes you get something like, uh, in the original capsule nets paper, they, they, you know, showed, oh, well, if we tweak this value, we get translation. But if they tweaked another value, the tail of the seven wobbled around. So like, you know, they were saying, oh, it's encoding this, this spatial information. Well, is it, or is that just something that happened to be learned? From, from how I view it, it's not enough to just apply a penalty and say, oh, therefore it should be doing this. It's like, no, you, you gotta, you gotta bind it to do these things. Otherwise it, it, it's not working the way that you say it is. And a lot of, a lot of research seems to be barreling up blind alleys based on hunches of researchers that, that didn't prove what they were saying was true. So yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go too much into too much depth on, um, you know, the failings of or what I see as the failings of these papers, because they did, they do do some really cool things. Like for instance, switching to vector valued functions. I think that's brilliant because moving to vector valued functions on any given point means you can do things like get these geometric matrices and, and start to do like transformations or stuff. And this shows up a lot in Max Welling's research theme on, on group equivariant transformations or like gauge equivariance and stuff where you do need that vector to kind of live in some space and to transform according to some set of coordinates. Fine, right? That's, that's, that's just cricket as far as I'm concerned. The problem that I really have is, is that, you know, um, a four by four matrix does not oppose matrix make and anyone should have called out Jeffrey Hinton on that because it's nowhere does he show that, that that's actually what's happening. And he, even if it is happening, it's happening by accident, not, not because the optimization problem kind of constrains to that. But yeah, but that kind of, I guess, quibble on theoretical points aside, I, I'd really like to thank Mark Scar for writing in. You know, he, he, he set us straight. I, I really hope to speak to him soon. And, and when his thesis is coming together a little bit more, maybe we'll get him to show uh, to walk us through his, his proposed architecture because you know, it, it, again, if we can get this working, it's it's good news for all of us. Anyway, next in the show, we have one of our community members, Alex Matic. He's talking to us today about type theory. Now, he says that type theory is the study of the dependence of types, terms and values to construct systems that allow for formal reasoning about a program's correctness, runtime, memory safety, and other attributes or even formally define the whole constructive mathematics. So due to that, type theory becomes a powerful tool for a computer scientist to reason about the complex issues that are inherent when building big software applications, either automatically or semi-automatically. So Alex believes that the classical techniques of computer science, specifically type theory, is a necessity for continued progress in mathematics, computer science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. Even though deep learning, which mostly relies on empirical evidence and rarely on formal proofs, and type theory, which basically solely relies on formal proofs, 
They seem to be polar opposites in his view, and a lot of opportunities arise from combining them together. Namely, that automatic proofs can allow for more insight into the inner workings of deep learning systems that will not be possible for human understanding alone. And due to the fact that a sufficiently strong type system does not allow for constructing terms that do not match the function's exact type, neural networks can be used to generate functions that, by design, have certain properties without having to rely on the neural networks to be formally correct. So he says that this can be used to further increase type theory's power by using the Curry-Howard correspondence, which is if a neural network can generate a function, it thereby can also generate proofs, which can be used to gain an even deeper understanding of types and therefore computer science and mathematics. Anyway, um, it was a real honor to have Alex join us today. And it goes to show that we've got a really vibrant community in, in our Discord, and please join our Discord. And if you would like to have a conversation with us, we only have three rules. You need to be smart, articulate, and opinionated. And as you can see, Alex has those three properties in spades. Enjoy. After the conversation, Alex also created this PDF file, which I'll link in the description, uh, formalizing some of the things that we were talking about. So, um, you know, a term rewriting system, what confluency means, we talked about polymorphism, so there's an example here in Haskell. Also talking about the calculus of constructions. So yeah, go and check out this PDF file uh, after you've watched the video. So um, Alex, great to meet you. Yep, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So um, anyway, Alex, we, we got yes. introduced to you because you are an aficionado of data types. I wouldn't quite say that, but I know my way around, so I know as I know enough to basically explain a lot of motivation behind type theory and why we should use it, and why it's also an interesting research direction for com for not only computer science but also uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So not only as a tool to use, but also as uh, a thing to explore. So, what's the state of the art of definition? What is a type? Oh, so a type is a way to write down the semantics. So I'm going to stay inside the realms of computer science. There is There are basically two big directions that uh, type theory is going at the moment. One is more focused on uh, computer science and one is more focused on like defining the fundamentals of mathematics. Mm -hmm. They're both very similar, but at the moment, at least in like this general sense, there is a problem of unifying both of them. So I'm going to keep in the computer science uh, realm because that's also a little bit easier. And uh, in this state, you could, you could say that type is just a semantic for lambda calculus or any syntactic foundation for computer science. So in, if, if you have a computer, and you tell, you tell a computer, regardless of what it's based on, if it's based on like an action machine or a lambda calculus, and you tell them, I have uh, two things, uh, execute addition on them. It will do that, regardless of whether the two things you want to add are actually integers or they are floating points. The, uh, the mechanics will still work the same. The thing is, you will just get an output which is not what you wanted. So... The way to remedy that is you define what do you semantically want. For example, in the addition of integers, you say, I want an integer and another integer, and then I give you well another integer. 
this has the advantage of not being able to get into the situation where you, for example, start adding floating points and booleans, uh, like, for example, how it's possible in like C or assembly language, where you can yep. do all of that. I'm naive to this, but it sounds like you're describing a kind of template. Personally speaking, I think that there's a difference between the type in like an object-oriented setting and a functional setting. What we usually talk about is in the functional setting. What's happening is that both of them are close to the same. So that's why the, an the analogy with templates is also close to perfect. The main difference, and it's also the thing you lose when you walk from a like object-oriented language into a functional language, is you basically lose the option of calling by reference. So you can still do template functions in C++. I'm not quite sure how they work. So. Don't don't worry about that. I, yeah. I know how they work uh, super well. I'm a I'm okay. a C plus master, so we can so, if we go to that route, we can talk about it. But in object oriented languages, what we can do is we can define, for example, a car, and then change things on top of it. So we can say braking reduces the speed by well how much you brake. The you can also do that in functional programming. That's basically what a monad is used for. You, you change something of the state, and what you get is you get back an object with that change state. The difference is in object-oriented programming, you don't have to return the thing, but you change what it once was. So it's not like a function in like the mathematical sense where you input an x and it becomes a different y. You morph the x to become a y. That's the difference between object-oriented programming and functional programming. Let's can we go back though because I'm still okay. not satisfied that I know what a type is. Let's start with I think lambda calculus is a good place to start because it's uh you know relatively simple if you will um, or I find it to be probably one of the simpler or easier to understand yeah. definitions of computing right. So for those out there that aren't familiar with lambda calculus and maybe we'll put up a graphic if this comes up but you know, it's it's a rewriting scheme. So you have these variables, right? And they're represented by symbols, let's just call them X, Y, and Z. And you write down what are called functions. And these just take the form of lambda, which is like, just say a symbol, right? And then parentheses, and then a list of variables like X, Y, okay? And then you give what the result of the application, the symbolic application of the that rule to those symbols are. So you might say, for example, lambda of x, y is equal to x star x plus x star y. So you're just rewriting those symbols with this, this kind of new list of symbols. Yep. And there's some other little bits in there and you can look it up on the Wikipedia, but that forms kind of a Turing complete model of computation. Go ahead, Tim. Can, can I ask the dumb question? So I've, I've seen lambda style functions in almost every language these days there's a lot of cross-pollination in languages whether it's yeah. r or javascript or python or c sharp um it's just a function right yes in my so, opinion yeah they're they're right they're functions. just just to simplify it yeah. let's maybe start at the beginning with what there's a good motivation for lambda calculus and also for types well, yeah let's start at the beginning at term rewriting schemes so because that's a nice motivation for lambda calculus and than for types. So a term rewriting scheme is just a syntactic, basically rule that gives you, for example, in normal addition, you may have associativity. 
you can define a rule that says, well, if you have something x plus uh, brackets y plus z, you can rewrite that and move the brackets to the front. So x plus y plus z. So uh, in rewriting terms, we, we usually only allow one direction because if we allow both, then we could get into an infinite loop. So that's one of the restrictions. Now, if you look at a term rewriting scheme, there are two things, two properties you are most often interested in. One is termination, as I've just mentioned. Basically, uh, if we uh, uh, use a symmetric closure, then we automatically get a non-terminating argument uh, or term rewriting scheme. But there are many different ways of uh, basically getting transitive infinite loops. To prevent that... Closure um, is a function inside a function. Uh, a closure is, if you have a function, uh, if you have a relation between two uh, two things, for example, you have an x and a y for f of x, x equals y. And a closure is just extending the function to be, uh, to have a certain property. So a symmetric closure uh, adds everything that's symmetric to that relation. So if I have a function, x, uh, which is a relation of a set x, y, then a symmetric closure gives you y, x, too. So in this and we, and we should know there's, there, there's kind of more than one, um, there's kind of more, more than one notion or concept of, of closure. And so yeah. some people might be familiar with, with the term closure from scheme or some other programming language, um, which, you know, kind of means like, uh, the state of the function at a certain point, plus all its all its bindings, its environment, if you will. So there's kind of different mean meanings of it and JavaScript. Um, but yeah. yeah, but I think what we were talking about there in the context of termination, I think we were talking about probably transitive closure, which is yes. so. If you have a if you have a function, so let's just for the moment imagine a function as as a relation, like in a database sense. You know, you have x and y. And they're related in some way. So, for example, Keith knows Tim. Tim knows Alexander. That would show up as Keith followed by Tim. Tim followed by Alexander. So, Keith in the X column, Tim in the Y column. And you know, if if you take that function and apply it to itself, so you join those two relations. So you do like a, a join, a literal kind of database join, um, and then you do the union of kind of the the new the new columns, then you wind up with an expanded set. So if I know Tim and Tim knows Alexander, then by second second knowing I know Alexander type thing, and you can keep repeating this. And eventually if it terminates, i.e. the relation like no longer keeps growing larger and larger and larger, then that is the transitive closure of that, of that function. It contains like the, you know, the result of applying that function to itself forever until it stops producing you know new new stuff so am i right about that Alex? but but yes. just but what because you said that's the transitive closure but what about yes. this symmetric closure is that the infinite loop thing we don't want that yes okay uh, if we, we usually get a trans so what we want to prevent is we want to prevent a transitive symmetric closure uh that's one of the ways things ca can get infinite because if you have something that's symmetric and transitive. You can, for example, say I go to from one to two to three, and then from three you can go back to one. And then you have this infinite loop. So that's one of the ways. 
Okay, so and suppose we've got like a rewriting, you know, <clears throat> rewriting scheme, and in this case, just lambda calculus to make it specific. And by the way, Tim, I just want to point out something here because this may come up in a future future talk. Is you can think of rewriting rules as pattern matching. Okay, so you're you're examining your current state, and if you find a pattern, uh, then you you ex rewrite that as a new a new set of symbols. Like you expand the sim you expand it into a new set of symbols. So kind of like pattern match and expand. Um, I don't know if we're allowed to do contraction and lambda calculus or not. I, isn't, I forget. But, isn't that very but, similar? Because um, there's a concept in Haskell where you can do pretty much what Alex just said before, right? So you have yes. this pattern, which is X plus brackets, yep. Y plus Z, and you can rewrite that. Yep. That's basically where I want to go. Because so are we, Alex, are we allowed to do like contraction? I don't, I don't recall. Are you allowed to have a pattern that, that matches and produces like a smaller pattern? Because then you can wind up with these these circles too, right? Or actually, Why? I guess a, any given so, lambda calculus, we don't know if it's going to terminate. Is that yes. true? Like, okay, because it's a, it's a deciding problem, right? Can or I, a whole yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly. So, All right, so in this context, though, here's my question. So we've got, we've got some rewriting rules. Um, I, I think at that point, if you want to add types to lambda calculus, then this is some structure that you associate with a particular symbol, right? Or like you, you would say that the symbol X belongs to this this type, and maybe Z also is a is a an element within that the domain for that type. But what is that that stuff? Is it like a set of predicates that 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 uh, that elements of that type satisfy? Um, you know, what exactly is that when I write it down? What is a type? So there's a very unpretty uh, notion because if you have a type like the natural numbers, this is just a synonym for a different type. So um, maybe let's back up a bit with lambda calculus. So where was going with the term rewriting because that's going to make a lot of things clear. The issue, so if you have a term rewriting system in front of you, you're usually interested in two properties. One is termination. And one is something called confluency. Confluency means uh, if I have uh, an equation and I can apply different rules at different points. So basically I could first uh, use the associativity rule and then like commutativity, or I can use first commutativity and then associativity. Will I end up at the same normal form? So at the end, if I reduce it down. Now, as it turns out, if you actually try to do that, you try to, for example, write a symbolic math library. This is very hard. Um, confluency, not as much, but especially termination. So what people thought about is, well, what about if we could build a term rewriting system that builds other term rewriting systems? And that's what lambda calculus is, in theory. Maybe let's take a quick example. We have an equation that is x plus brackets y plus zero. Uh, if you want to, I can also send you maybe something later. So you have x plus uh, brackets y plus zero. You could first go and reduce y plus zero to y, and you get x plus y. And then you have to stop. You cannot do any further. On the other hand, you can also say, well, let's use associativity and write x plus y plus zero, and then we use uh, x plus y plus zero is equal to x plus y. 
So these are all syntactic rules applied, but in a different order. And in this case, we even end up at the same uh, destination. And that's something very important because if if you have a system that basically diverges for different uh, orderings of rules, then you, basically you have to ensure that certain rules are applied in a certain order. And this is oftentimes not trivial because one rule application will maybe lead to uh, lead to a structure which is actually another rule application. So on that, do we need to design these rules then? So because so you said this confluency means it doesn't matter which order I apply these rules. But so many things in mathematics, the, the order does matter. For example, if I'm doing matrix transformations, I'm, I might do a rotation and a translation and then a, an affine transformation. It, it matters which order I do them in. So doesn't that restrict the operations that we can perform? What we're always talking about is syntactic rewriting. Let me just That's... jump in here because I think there might have been. So let me just check on something. So, Tim. So linear algebra. Um, you know, as you as you rightly point out, there there's like an, an order of operations. But if you were to write down a a lambda calculus for uh, for linear algebra, it would respect those those orders of operations. Um, you know, so for example, it would say like, okay, if I have matrix A times matrix B, I'm not allowed to rewrite that as B times A because I, you know, that right. yes. that's that's not a, a rewriting rule. So that rewriting rule would never show up in there. I think the confluency problem is that if you've got this set of rules, you do want to make sure, and it's in the context of anything, so linear algebra, you want to make sure that if you, like, suppose I write down Keith's lambda calculus for linear algebra. And I go around and say, look, everybody, I've written down a lambda calculus for linear algebra. The confluency requirement is that if somebody follows my rules, right, that no matter what path they follow through those, those rules, they get to the same, they get to the same result. Um, yes. So that it's kind of like a consistent, you know, set of linear algebra. So imagine if linear algebra had a rule that said, yeah, well, you know, A, a times B, um, you can't change that to B times A, but you can change A times B times C to A times C times B, right? Well, that would that would kind of introduce an inconsistency because then if you if you apply the rules on some larger set of equations, if somebody decided to go down that path rather than some other path, they'll wind up with you know a different answer. So it contains like an internal, um, I don't want to say inconsistency, but an internal uh, what what's the opposite of a confluence divergence. Yeah. Things like an internal divergence. So these are two properties. So confluency and termination are two properties we both want in a terminal writing system. Now, what people figured out is if you just write down this thing informally, it's very hard to actually analyze uh, all of these uh, properties of like a general term rewriting system. So one thing people, people thought, well, let's write a term rewriting system for a term rewriting system. So basically a meta system. And this is Lambda Calculus. In Lambda Calculus, we have rules. Uh, we introduce them with Lambda. So for example, a rule Lambda X uh, dot Lambda Y uh, dot XY just means well, we have an X and we apply the Y uh, to the X. In 
And as it turns out, that's all, re all you need. You don't need a plus, you don't need the natural numbers, you don't need anything. And the reason for that is the natural numbers in of itself are also a system that's based on rules. So if you, for example, have the natural, let's take natural numbers because it's the easiest example. What do you have? Well, we have the zero and then we have a successor function. So zero, one, two, three are just zero, successor of zero, successor of successor of zero, and so on. And as it turns out, it doesn't even actually matter what zero is. If I, uh, if I write zero as a symbol, or if I write zero as like a text, it still doesn't change anything. So the natural numbers are defined by this recursive structure. That's the reason why the lambda calculus is so simple, because you don't need anything else than I need to introduce a rule and I need to apply that rule because everything else, it, every structure you can think of has to have some kind of rule below it. And I, I would recommend um, listeners when you get the chance, if you haven't before gone to look at uh, what are called Piano's axioms, which define arithmetic, um, it'll kind of give you, you know, the, a very simple way in which to think about rules or, uh, you know, predicates that you could write down functional forms that would, that would define arithmetic. And you can write that as a, as a type, you can write that as, let's say an algebraic type, for example, um, there's a, you know, a whole algebraic, I think it's correctly called algebraic type theory, right? Alex, the, the sort of one one model of type theory what fascinates me about this though is this is the beauty of mathematics that we see the natural numbers and we almost assume that these things are just we, we don't really have examples of how do we abstract the rules that apply to natural right. numbers we see something similar in group theory for example you know what happens if you take a step up and you look at different transformations to objects and you represent that mathematically um it, it's just beautiful what you can express in mathematics Oh, oh, it is. So, so this is the entire field of abstract algebra. Um, yeah. And it's really cool. You know, the, the sort of the way that uh, a teacher wants or a professor once phrased this to me is he said, imagine you were some alien, right? And you just showed up to, at Earth and you started doing anthropological research to figure out, you know, understand what people are doing, right? And and you would just start kind of, you might start associating symbols with, with their kind of rules and math. And you would examine the, the structure of those symbols. Like, well, when they have, you know, the X equals Y, when they have kind of that, that symbol, that set of symbols written down, that sentence, it, also, it often implies that Y equals X also. And so we have this kind of rule there, which says like in an abstract sense, anytime X is equal to Y, Y is equal to X. Um, and so they would just start kind of analyzing and dividing up our mathematics in this sort of very abstract, symbolic way. And abstract algebra is the study of what do you have, <laughs> what do you have left over when you kind of strip all the, you know, I guess all the semantics. What do you have left over yes. when you strip all the semantics from those symbols x and y, and just look at the patterns and the rewriting and the and the and the rules behind there. It's, it is fascinating. It's really pretty a neat, a neat study. It can be kind of mind-blowing too, actually. It, it definitely is. So what I just said with the, boiling it down to the syntax, that's really also what's happening and what's that kind of the problem with 
lambda calculus. Because now we have this beautiful structure, you can write re uh, rewriting uh, systems in it. There are also other nice attributes, for example, confluency. As it turns out, we can basically have solve confluency with lambda calculus. Since every term that does terminate in lambda calculus is also confluent. So it doesn't matter uh, uh, what thing I've reduced first and what thing I reduced second. And we can even do one better. We can say if we have an infinite amount of ways to rewrite it, so an infinite amount of orderings, we can find uh, one, we can always find an ordering that terminates if it exists. So for example, if you have a part of a function that runs indefinitely, but it turns out I never need to evaluate it, I can find uh, basically a way to reduce it to basically reduce around that problem. So this is one of the very nice attributes of lambda calculus. One of the not so nice attributes is exactly the lack of semantics. And this, and this also leads to the second problem because we cannot decide termination. This is also something a little bit to do with the fact that we cannot redefine semantics. I'm going to be careful here because there are ways of defining semantics for lambda calculus, for pure lambda calculus, but I don't know anyone who actually works with them. I think it's, I think it's more like a thing you can do. We, we so, should, okay. we, to obtain confluency, you need to establish a certain set of rules to ensure termination because there, there are many ways of doing things and some of them terminate and some of them don't. Is, is, is that what you were saying? Um, not, not, not really. So in Lambda Calculus, we can assume that every term that terminates is also confluent. So it's an right. implication. Right. But if, uh, but termination but termination is sometimes also dependent on the order of operations. So there are terms that don't always terminate, but also but only sometimes terminate. And for those, we can also find basically the one reduction strategy that leads us to a terminating case. Termination in our case means every path terminates. So it doesn't matter uh, which reduction I take, it always terminates. And if that's the case, then we get confluency. I see, because that's why I was confused, because the way I understood confluency before was it shouldn't matter the order in which you do the operations, in which case it doesn't really matter which path you take through these. There's a kind of tree of paths yes. of operations. And what you're saying is, regardless of the path you take through that tree, um, they should all um, terminate. Yes. Well, <laughs> but, hold on. So I think I mentioned something that we didn't kind of mention before, which is, and I believe this applies here, but Alex, correct me if I'm wrong. So termination problems, like in computability theory, they have two parts to them. They have the, the machine. So in this case, it would be the, a particular Lambda calculus. Here's the set of rules and the input. And then the question is, will this machine terminate on this, on this input? Like that's the, the sort of halting problem or the, the, the decidability problem, correct? Yes. Though in Lambda Calculus, we usually assume that the inputs are also inside the term definition. So, uh, so for example, you also get, you get the whole thing with the arguments applied. And so, so therefore we don't need to have this distinction between 
the machine uh, that terminates for certain input. We just look at does the entire lambda calculus terminate because the lambda calculus is already with inputs in it. Right. Okay. So fine. So it's just here's the thing. You know, does it terminate? And so, and just to kind of like tie off at that end, you know, the the quote unquote halting problem as a whole is can you build a machine that given any machine plus input can determine whether or not you know it terminates and like the answer to that question is no like you can't and there's a, for readers interested you should sometime look up the proof to that it's like super simple it's in like five lines or something will kind of blow your mind yeah. maybe uh, i think it's pretty mind-blowing but in any case i think what alex is saying is that for a particular uh, and I have to keep making this distinction, you know, input plus machine, like for a, a particular lambda calculus plus its its input, even though you're saying that's sort of typically seen as part of the definition of it. You know, if it terminates, then it's it's confluent. Is that correct? Yes. But I, but I think you were saying that there could be for that same lambda calculus, there could be an input for which it doesn't terminate. Is that correct? Um. No, what, what I was trying to say is, let's say we have a different lambda calculus. And if we say termination, we usually mean the all paths terminate. So if it's entire tree and yeah. every path in the tree terminates. Now, let's say we get a tree and there are some paths that do terminate. And there are some other paths who will go up to infinity. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we can even we can find the path that does terminate. Uh -huh. So basically, it's a weakening of this termination problem. Okay, so we can find the path that does terminate. And if it terminates, so we can find all the paths that terminate. And, and is it the case that all of those paths are I'm, confluent? I, uh, I'm not sure if you can find all paths. That's, that's something I'm not quite sure of, but probably you can. Well, what if and I find more than one? If I find two, am I guaranteed that they're confluent? Yes, you're guaranteed okay. that. Okay, so I got you. So in Lambda Calculus, any, if I find any path that terminates, it's the same as any other path that terminates. Yes. Okay. Just before we get on to semantics, uh, we've been talking a lot about GPT-3 and language. And of course, that has a similar kind of, um, I guess you could call it a halting problem. The reason why language is infinity is because many paths in that tree do not terminate. So could you draw a contrast between the kind of um, lambda calculus we're talking about and a potential system for understanding language? Or is that a bit out there? Um, I don't think it's that out there, but I also think that's not really the right question to ask because um, in because we're talking about two different systems. One is a semantic system. So GPT-3, at least it tries to work in a semantic space. And Lambda Calculus, uh, as, as, it as it exists uh, from the definition, doesn't have semantics, just that syntax. What it can now do is you can try to give uh, this syntactic, uh, the syntactic system a semantic, but again, that's something that types then do. I know you said that uh, there are ways to add types, if you will, to uh, to lambda calculus. I mean, there is you know typed lambda yeah. calculus, for example, and I think you said you know, but nobody really uses those. No, no, so. that's oh. that's that's not what I said. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. There is, 
the thing is a type, let's it, try to continue defining what type is. A type is a guarantee on a lambda term. Mostly, basically, the simplest uh, system is simply type lambda calculus. It just guarantees you if I input something of a type A, you get back something of a type B, and that's a guarantee. So there is no A I can input that doesn't actually give me a B. Okay, when we say input, uh, so so again, a, a lambda calculus is a set of many lambda rules, right? Um, yes. So at this point, what do we mean by input? So we're making a statement that says like a particular symbol X is of type A, right? Yes. Okay. And so if, if X is of type A, then I guarantee that some other variables are of a certain type. Like if X is of type A, then, then I guarantee that Y is of type B or what? Basically, yes. Where can... Y is the application of some, some rules. Maybe... What you can try to do is basically go into like something like Haskell. And the idea there is also if I have a function, for example, addition, I say add a natural number, natural number, and you give me back a natural number, then that's actually a guarantee that any natural number I input, and so any two natural numbers, will give me another natural number. There is no case. That's, that says um, I can input, for example, five, and I don't actually get a natural number out of it. Okay, so what? these are these are the, in other words, this is <clears throat> if we think about the function signature, you know, that says X is of type, you know, A, Y is of type B, then Z is, is of type, you know, C. So it's that, just that kind of statement is, is simply typed lambda calculus. Is that correct? Yes, in simply typed lambda calculus, we, we just don't allow many of the abstractions. The reason we need this, it's, it's similar to, um, you know, there's the Ravens example in, in logic. It, it's super important to be able to constrain systems because the reason why we have typing in programming is we have compile time error checking and we can um, have a really wonderful experience in our IDE because we can um, reason around the behavior of a particular program. It, it's super important to know that this particular function, it um, adds a real number to a real number and it gets out a real number, right? That, that yeah. seems super important. But wh wh why do you think it's important? It's important because it, let's say we define addition. In addition, what we can do is uh, we can define that inductively. We can say x plus zero is x and x plus the successor of z is the same as the successor of x plus z. So maybe I can also write that uh, into the video. And now this thing only has meaning if what I input actually has some kind of idea what an s is. So s in this case of successor function and the successor function only exists for like natural numbers, but don't exist for something like um, a car. In the, so it's a guarantee that things further down the road don't break. Just trying to think of a real world example. We, we were talking to Walid Saba about natural language understanding, and we talked about the example of the corner table wants a beer. And he said, well, I've got some ontology here and I've got a whole bunch of, um, let, let's say, lambda calculus over the, the ontology and the table doesn't want a beer. 
right? The table doesn't want anything because maybe there's a want function which is attached to every single object and um, only a human can want a beer. So that gives us an example of we can perform reasoning over this ontology because we have this type structure. Is, is that why we might use this? Well, let me, ref let me f ask a question that I think might help us answer that, which is so in an untyped Lambda calculus where you've just got you know, all these, these rules that just say you have any symbol uh, next, uh, you know, followed by a plus sign and any other symbol, then you can rewrite it in this way, right? In type land, the calculus, you're saying that, um, you know, for this rule, if you input in integer and integer, you get an integer. Um, the reason why that's kind of helpful, I think, and this is where I really need you to help me, Alex, is that of all the kinds of sets of rules that are in there, some subset I know I can apply, for example, to integers. Like not every rule can I apply to integers, just like I can't apply the successor rule to a car. And so in the, like what makes it useful then is, um, you know, if I have, for example, a function signature that tells me that the, that the result is a real number, then I know it makes sense for me to apply other rules that take real numbers as, as inputs. So I can take, you know, like uh, I can't, I can't do the square root, for example, because yep. if I do the square root, I might get back a complex number, and that that's not acceptable within that that function. So it it constrains the functions that I can apply within within that evaluation, if you will, um, because I have to end up with a result that is that is a real number, or I could apply square root as long as I follow that up with a uh, you know an ab, say um, uh, you know a, a um, magnitude function, yeah. right? Um, so I think it, it sort of sets constraints on the code or the sequences of rules that you can apply within a function because you have to meet the final constraint that the result be a real number or an integer or whatever. Um, is that, yeah. are we going in the right direction or what? Yes, it basically says I get inputs of a certain shape, I get an output of another shape. So in the case of an integer, for example, if I, if addition, I get something that's the shape of an integer, another shape of an integer, and I get back another shape of an integer. And that's a guarantee. So sometimes, for example, you hear people say that an Haskell program, if it compiles, it works. So it cannot crash. That's exactly what they mean by it. Because the type you write down is the actual guarantee that what you wrote is a general statement for every integer. Right, but but the reason that that's helpful is that once I've once I've said that a a symbol has a particular type, and then a in a simply typed lambda cal lambda calculus, I'm assuming that every rule specifies its sort of type signature, which is that you know this this variable maybe it has an untyped possibility too. I, I mean that's fine, but basically every signature says that this argument is of this type, this argument is of this type, and and when I rewrite it, it ends up of this type. And so, so you can check that, like with a quote-unquote compiler, you can look at a particular fu function signature and you can look at the, the rules that it applies and you can confirm just by all this kind of pattern matching whether or not it is at least uh, uh, type compatible, like that the shapes yes. are all compatible. Like almost like almost the analogy could be with, with, with shapes and machine learning where I know I have a multi-dimensional array that has, you know, this certain shape. And if I apply this transformation, I get this shape and you can check all the shapes 
you know, straight out of the box without actually kind of running the algorithm even. I, I, with Lambda Calculus, can you have inheritance or interfaces, for example? Could, could, could I have a, um, a, a signature which took in an I quackable? So it took in as long as something that quacked. Do, do you see what I mean? Because the alternative would be, what if we had this inheritance hierarchy of, of a duck, you know, which was an animal and we got ourselves caught up in knots? Yes, you can, but you can't in Simply Type Lambda Calculus. So right. there are different extensions to this Simply Type Lambda Calculus. One of the obvious ones is polymorphism. So you don't say uh, this works for like an integer, it works for anything I put into it. So for example, the identity function uh, that, that takes an A and gives you back an A that works for any function. It doesn't matter what I input. Wait, and, uh, so hold on, like, I, I'm not, my, my understanding of polymorphism was more that I can, I can say, you know, I have this functional form and if X and Y are integers, then Z is an integer. If X and Y are, are reals, then Z is a real. If X and Y are, one is an integer and one is a real, then Y is a real. Like it, at least that's parametric polymorphism, right? Because it sounded more like what you were describing was just back to untyped. Like I get this, I get this thing and it's any, type any. Um, and then the result is type any. Because my understanding of polymorphism with that um, iQuackable example is it could take in any type. So it, it might be a mallard duck or it might be some other type of duck, but they are all iQuackable. So essentially it's polymorphism. Um, so so there, are, there are two extensions that usually go hand in hand. One is this polymorphism, which just says um, every, this is guarantee for every type. So it's different from untapped lambda calculus because it's still a guarantee of termination. So in, oh. unt um, in what the next extension could be is we add, we add a thing that's basically a type of a type. So you just mentioned interfaces. We can also do that. So uh, the important part is to actually produce a consistent system, we have to make sure that an interface is something completely distinct from uh, a type. So this is just uh, this mere technicality. So in Haskell, for example, you have type classes. So you could write like a class that is quackable, and this has a function that's called quack. And then you can say, well, this uh, well a duck implements this class. So it's basically part of this uh, group of types. And then you can also request uh, in your like polymorphic function, you can request, a, you, you can request a function, a value that has this attribute. So these are usually seen as two different extensions. So you have one is polymorphism, a guarantee that's for all types. And the second is uh, basically types of types and together you have this uh, system where you can have uh, we can plug out a certain subset of types for which a function has a guarantee so what's the what's the highest order form of lambda calculus called the one that includes like every every extension so long as they all remain mutually consistent what's it called like ultra type calculus or what it's the calculus of constructions the calculus of constructions. Okay, so I have to we, read up on that later. <laughs> we we lose the we lose the name with like 
type basically use the type three part because it, it's way more than that. Uh, the calculus of construction is powerful enough to be uh, basically a foundation for mathematics. So, and that's also what people are trying to do. They try to do basically get away from like using a set as like the baseline definition for math. They try to use this, for example, calculus of constructions or homotopy type theory or something like that. And basically uh, with this, uh, with these two uh, extensions I've already mentioned, we are already very close to this calculus of constructions. The third extension you need is uh, you need to be able to put a value inside of a type. So, or, or a function, basically values and functions in lambda calculus are the same. So, and this becomes very interesting because now you can define something like a matrix type, which is like a matrix, which takes in two real values, N and M, and then you can, for example, define matrix multiplication by saying, well, give me a matrix uh, with the dimensions N and M, another matrix with the dimensions M and C, and I get out a matrix with dimensions N and C. And, and that's is, like, that, is that generalizable to where like M and C could just be arbitrary functions? So I, if I take a matrix that satisfies function M and function C, and another matrix that satisfies function n and function x, that the end result satisfies function g. Is, is it that general? Um, In other words, so, where it's not just a value, like it's not just a, a simple value, but an actual function that, um, that sort of, you know, is true or false for that. Well, presumably you could you could define anything you wanted it you could yeah. even yeah. generalize the matrix to have your own custom basis functions I would right imagine. so essentially a constraint system a contract system if you will like it is it general enough to to provide for that it's general enough to do basically anything you can think of in math so okay, because i'm could... taking a word for this so if i if i go if i really wanted to educate myself on the state of the art of where we're at these days with this and if i start diving into calculus of construction, that's where I should start, right? Um, I'm not sure if calculus of construction is the right place to start learning well, about type well, theory, but... Uh, <laughs> what what yes. I mean is that, uh, that, that if, I, if I delve into that field, I'll be getting state-of-the-art. Is there any... And, I, and, and again, I'm just making sure I, I get the whole landscape here. Is there any competing sort of field like there's the calculus of construction guys and they're in this side of the conference and over on the other side mm -hmm. are the the something else that like think they're completely wrong and have a different is is there something like that what's that so called? so i don't think anyone really says that the thing is completely wrong there are different ways to think about types so uh the calculus of construction is one way and what people are now trying to do is there's another idea in type theory, which is called homotopy type theory, which basically acts as if every type is a point in a topolog topolog topological space and has connections between them. And if type one and type two has a connection that goes into both directions, then they are the same. And as it turns out, this is very useful in like, uh, to define basically math two what people are trying to do is they try to do basically calculus of constructions and try to basically find a way to get this homotopy type theory, get a computational element inside of it. And as it turns out, it's more difficult than one might think. Okay, so but does does 
category theory fit within calculus of construction? Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. So that, that I'm satisfied then. That, now I've got something fun to uh, study <laughs> over so, this holiday break. We we've got nine minutes left, and we oh, we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't contrast all of this wonderful world to deep learning. Because deep learning is the complete opposite of this. What we've been talking about is imbuing knowledge into systems, right? And this is the way that, that you know, the good old fashioned AI folks used to do it. Because um, we're talking about knowledge, I, I think, with, with Lambda Calculus, right? Yeah. Deep, deep learning is the complete opposite. We're just working in arbitrary geometric spaces and we don't really understand what on earth is going on. Do you, do you think we should be introducing some of these, these ideas into deep learning? I definitely think so. The issue we have in deep learning is we cannot use it for anything mission critical. Because I don't want, probably I wouldn't even want to have a car which is completely deep learning based. Because I have no idea of what will it do if it gets into a situation that isn't in the training set. So what we actually want is we want formal guarantees. In the, okay, in the perfect case, we usually don't even get formal guarantees at the moment. But in a perfect case, I would want to have a car that drives and is formally correct in the sense that um, it, that certain guarantees are always intact. So for example, it's I'm guaranteed to always stay on the road. And one, th one way you could basically introduce ty uh, type theory to deep learning is by saying, well, in type theory, a lot of things involve proofs. So I haven't really touched on that, but there is something called the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And it basically tells us that a type is just a statement and the Basically, function is a proof for that statement. So if I have a statement that says, uh, for example, I have a value for all of which, for example, I have a number and every other number is bigger than that number. Then writing a program that basically gives me this value is akin to proving that statement. And as it turns out, this proofs over time in type three get more and more and more involved and get more complicated and more complex and also more general. So I, I do want to, I, I do want to be fair to machine learning. So the sort of provable correctness of, um, of software, for example, we don't have that today. So, I mean, today, yeah. well, we do, but there's very, there's only a very microscopic domain of, of software writing, like in some of the, some of the things that NASA does, for example, you know, they may have provably correct uh, algorithms or, or pieces of code that they've taken the time to do that. And so sort of somebody from the machine learning, you know, side could argue, look, the benchmark here isn't provable correctness. It's more human, human level correctness because humans screw up software all the time. I mean, we suffer from it every day. And, you know, in fact, you know, people die from it. So um, we just have to get to a point where machine learning is, much better than human parody, and then you might you might be willing to drive a car that was totally deep learning based if we have evidence that shows, you know, it's better than people ninety nine point however many nines kind of percent of the time. So, but but I agree with you that 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 if we do want to get towards a a realm in which we have more provably correct um, software, we we need something like this. We need something like you know typed type systems. And so to extend further, the idea that you can 
use machine machine learning for like formal proofs is something I found very interesting. Because even in, for example, in I think it was 2016, we had AlphaGo, which basically had a simulator and then did Monte Carlo tree search and just uh, basically looked at which uh, paths are worth exploring more. And this really is something that's also very useful for like formal proofs. If I have, um, if I have like a, uh, something I want to prove and I have many different options I can take, and you could think of a, a deep learning system that basically decides in which order I can explore them. So basically do uh, like a heuristics function, learn that. And uh, as it turns out, this is probably possible uh, even now with our current understanding of uh, machine learning. And it's something I think it's probably underexplored under because it's something that has, has the opportunity to be uh, basically a step forward in like software engineering overall and computer science overall. Can, can you expand on what you mean by a heuristic function? And, and by the way, it's not just AlphaGo. We're talking about GPT-3. We might need to have a kind of Monte Carlo tree search to search for GPT-3. I knew, I knew you were going to mention <laughs> I, I always bring it back to GPT-3. But, but what do you mean by a heuristic function? A heuristic function is something that weighs paths based on, basically on smell. So if I have 10 right. paths and one of them, it kind of, it seems better than the other ones. I take that one. Function that we think correlates to the true objective function. It's like a, yeah. a rule of yeah. thumb. Yeah. It, it, exactly. Because this is the problem we have with GPT-3. I, I personally think it's not doing anything interesting. But then we have Connor Leahy who says, well, we just need, we need what AlphaGo did. We need to do this Monte Carlo research. Clearly there exists a path through this space of possibilities, which is super interesting. And we need some kind of a controller on the top now. All right, that's a rabbit hole. I do want to say thank you so much, uh, Alex, for your education here. And I think we should, I think we should talk more. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. I think this has been an amazing uh, uh, conversation, actually. And um, I, I, it's, a, it's a really cool idea, actually, because we've got this amazing Discord community on, on Yannick's server, and we've got some incredibly bright people like Alex. And th the only rule to come on Street Talk is, is to be uh, smart, articulate, and, and opinionated. And, and Alex has got all of all of those three in spades. So, Alex, thank we're you not, so we're much We're not going to have a civility rule? We're not going to have a... Oh, <laughs> The, the only reason I hate Chromium is there's a developer called Glenn. He used to do DHTML about 20 years ago. And he is the person who has single-handedly forbidden um, Chromium from supporting MRU tab switching. So this is the default behavior in basically every single Windows application. It's in VS Code everywhere. And he said, he basically killed it from the beginning. There's like a, on the Chromium bug tracker, there's a thing which has been closed. It's been there for 10 years. It's had about 5,000 people say, what the fuck? Why can't we have MRU tab switching? And it's because of this one guy. What's MRU oh, tab switching? Most recently used tab switching. When you go controlled, like control, if you do alt tab on your operating yeah. system. Or even the, the iOS does it. Everyone does this. What yeah, the yeah. fuck? Holy shit, yeah. this even works on a Linux. Yeah, like, right. but they do the carousel thing, which is so stupid because I've got 100 tabs open. But what am I going to do? Do control tab 100 times. Isn't there stories yeah. about Fisher, the statistician being... Exactly. <laughs> because you know why? Because he, he wasted so much of my time. Because I had to go through this crap orthodox statistic education 
that then ended up being totally useless and only to accidentally discover the probability theory is logic viewpoint decades later or whatever, 10 years later, that actually was useful and understandable. I just felt like I got ripped off in my education because of that guy. We are here to talk about reader mail. I never managed to finish to write. This was about one episode where you were, it was a Keith and Tim episode. And parts of my, and the things I wanted to talk about uh, that I don't think we should pre-encode information and information into our models. And also some theories I have about label information density and why CNN models are basically learning garbage or image models. And, and okay. b b before we start, I want to say right off the bat that there's a really good chance I will be wrong with everything. That's okay. No, we're wrong we're about everything join, all the time. Join the crowd. Pre-encode information. Because we were talking all about um, inductive priors and there's a, a bias variance trade-off. So the idea is that if you don't put inductive priors into models, then it's very difficult to learn stuff. It's actually a really good argument. Give me just a concrete example of a model that encodes no information. I can't. I would... Yeah, because in my mind, like, I can't even write down anything without encoding. Mm, uh, like, even if I tried some non-parametric as possible approach, somehow I'm going to imply information about the domain, that it's integers or it's a real number between here and there. There's always some kind of, of prior information encoded and, like, any formula or, or workable process that I write down. I was more specifically talking about uh, about you mentioning that you maybe want would to see something like rotational invariance encoded in two vision models, yep. and I would mm -hmm. and uh, the. The idea behind was that maybe you can approximate some function with a million values, but it would be smarter to find this one function that would that we are trying to approximate. Mm -hmm. And I would say, and and I would say that we we should go in the opposite direction and try to remove as much biases out of our models. Be, uh, because yeah, I am on, I am of the opinion that we should learn from data, not from the models. Let's do the, the let's let's run through that then. The reason why we introduced biases into deep learning models, presumably the blank slate model is the fully connected network. But the problem is we waste the rep, the representational capacity because we oh, just uh, memorize everything. The, the CNN is a great inductive prior, and that gives you translational weight sharing. So it's models local connectivity it also allows you to reuse the same weights across many parts of the image giving you translational covariance and meaning that you can learn the same object in different parts of the plane and you're just using the same parameters over and over again so it gives you regularization it increases your generalization it improves your sample efficiency your gen it's it seems like a good thing right Mm. Uh, that's one of the things that I think we talk with, what was it, Max Welling about? Is yeah. that so? Yes, it's a good thing, but I'm also of the opinion that you hard code this translation invariance, and, and that's just not always the case. It's a good bias if you don't have enough data or compute, but actually, the world isn't translationally invariant. 
and especially the data sets we have aren't. It makes sense almost to say if we had enough data and compute, then you would rather not have these biases in your model. I'm a bit in that camp. There are contexts in which translation and variance is correct. If I'm looking for a if I'm looking for a quarter and all I know is that people are sending me pictures of quarters that can occur at any magnification and it's going to be anywhere within the picture, then I'm looking for quarters and they are translationally invariant. If I move a quarter around, I'm leaving out all, there's always details. Yeah, there's reflected light. Maybe some of the reflections change if I move it around, but the ideal quarter is translationally invariant. And so for that particular application, I would want to have not only a translationally invariant, but a scale invariant for zoom invariant, yeah. whatever you want to say. But, but you want the deep learning model to be equivariant. I mean, and a big part of that is not just the sample efficiency. It's, it's a, well, it is a little bit, but it's about making it more learnable. From a, a problem-solving perspective, mm -hmm. you come and you hire a data scientist to write a, a black box that determines whether or not there's a quarter in the image, okay? And you've got Yannick, and he does it with 25 million parameters and no prior knowledge built into that. And, and Tim that comes along and builds in, uses a CNN because he wants translational invariance and, and whatever. At the end of the day, Tim's going to win. Like, he's going to produce the black box that meets that challenge more efficiently with better utilization of data, power consumption, et cetera, than Yannick's black box. This was what I talking about, uh, near-term solutions with more simple problems uh, where having inductive bias can be a good thing, but I was more thinking more long-term in the more 10-year range with, um, with much larger data sets and uh, basically solving computer vision. And in this case, I would say inductive biases are more, more harmful than helpful. I would go completely the opposite way to you. Having spoken to Walid Sabah the other week, I'm coming <laughs> round to the view that no deep learning model can understand anything. So you need to encode world knowledge into all of these models because it's not in the data. I'm in some middle ground between you two. I think it's all context dependent, even in the case of 10 years from now, okay? If we're in a context, in a situation where there is prior, you know, knowledge that we have, whether it's scientific, we know that we're looking at whatever Lorentz invariant star paths or whatever the case is. If, if we have prior knowledge, no matter what the compute is, no matter what the data size is, someone encoding accurate prior knowledge will always have an advantage over someone encoding complete ignorance. The yep. disadvantage comes in, and Yannick has mentioned this before, that if you encode inaccurate prior knowledge, then you're going to perform worse. And that I think is where you have to be clever about what I call providing outs to the algorithm, which is, okay, maybe I assign a prior probability of one half to my encoded prior knowledge. And then I also have a one half probability that I'm totally wrong. And that, and so you run kind of two models in parallel. I've got the ignorance one that knows basically nothing except the simple structure of something it has to know something it can't start with zero so there's some simple structure over there and then that's one of my prior models and then the other prior model is this one that has some stuff encoded maybe i have some other one like some different information encoded and then you do the model weighting selection routine like i think that approach 
always wins out over any pure, no prior knowledge versus prior knowledge all the time. Because a, a key concept for learning is generalization. This is what Francois Chalet pointed out. And if you do take a blank slate approach, memorization is not good enough. You need to learn something that generalizes. And in order to do that, I would argue you need to have invariant or equivariant mechanisms inside your priors. Isn't GPT-3 against that? No, I mean, what was, so Yannick, you said, isn't, I missed something. GPT is a a counterexample to what claim? So we were saying that we're talking about having all these inductive priors and so on. Uh GPT-3 seems to be an example of a blank slate architecture with no inductive priors, really. In in my opinion, and I think we all have slightly different opinions on this, but having played with GPT-3 extensively, I am extremely disappointed. And I think it's testament to the fact that blank slate models have their limitations. Really? Is it uh, mm. that disappointing? For me, I think it doesn't demonstrate any natural language understanding whatsoever. This, I think this... it, it's been misrepresented in, in the popular media because people don't understand that you sample it randomly. So it's not really appropriate for these prompt engineering or this software 3.0 stuff. And all of the examples we've seen online of software 3.0, we have found out that they've been cherry picked. And what they've actually done is they've let GPT-3 complete the software program for them. So it's not really a software program. It's basically just something that GPT-3 has found on the internet. Oh yeah, that was. I'm, a, really I'm a good bit. Find. I'm a bit less. A bit less. Less pessimistic than Tim on this. I think it's pretty awesome. Maybe. <laughs> I also think we're not good enough yet at asking it questions. Mm-hmm. But it is true that a lot of these examples are quite cherry. Or cherry and yeah. Yeah, really... performs actually exceptionally well at certain things. Like it can. To Generation. me, still, it can interpolate patterns extremely well it can generate extremely well. it can story tell like storytelling tells um, amusing stories that's for sure <laughs> uh, but i think where we run into problems is exactly what tim's pointing out is when you have people that have an agenda and they use cherry picking and so- selective biases and the kind of things like and they're not careful about telling that story they're just throwing stuff out here look it, i created a database and that's a problem is and we're always going to have that we're always going to have people with agendas that hype on both sides like ai is going to destroy us oh you're a moron ai poses no threat the truth is somewhere in between so i, I just liked kenneth's point which is look it's a playground and i also like the point that he brought up of he doesn't understand why so many people are out there trying to destroy or diminish GPT-3. But the answer to that is because there's so many people out there overhyping it. And so there's a natural tendency to want to rebalance that from some. Mm, One thing I uh, want to say about GPT-3 is uh, I don't think it's really about the actual performance this model shows. It's more about the trajectory as as such a technique uh, lays in front of us. And then it's, of course, quite interesting what much larger scale models will bring to the table. We've got to consider efficiency here, right? There is an efficiency argument that with GPT-3, it does few shot learning. That's the most exciting thing about it. Mm. It does insane pattern matching with just a few examples and even a non-technical user 
I'm talking about not only efficiency of its like scoring or post-training capabilities, but I know the efficiency of its actual calculation and space uses and CPU and how much it took to train it and how much it learned from the data that it was provided. There's a good chance that we can distill and compress the model. So make a much smaller model do pretty much the same thing. And there is an asymmetry in the sense that we train it once and then it's got many downstream applications. I think Jan is um, representing what some of the Miri guys think, which is that intelligence is a generating function and that their position is that human intelligence um, is actually not too dissimilar to GPT-3. We're just like a random generator of, of some kind. So I warned you in an episode that at some point we're going to define intelligence in such a way that people aren't intelligent. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because I, I, I actually like entertaining this idea that many of the things we do are more procedural than we realize. For example, we're very economic in the decisions we make. We look to the decisions of others. Like when we when we turn right in traffic, we don't think about it because the guy in front of us is doing it. Or if there isn't a guy in front of us, we remember when we last did it. And actually almost everything, we don't really think about it because we've just memorized it. And it, it's almost like we're just drones. We're just following a script. No, I, I get it. That's why I think eventually definitions become not useful. But it does come back to system two. So the whole thing that we supposedly have is this higher level of reasoning. And clearly GPT-3 doesn't have it. It's just procedural. It's just pattern matching. And I think what Jan's possibly trying to argue here is that actually intelligence doesn't have that system two. Yes. And in the con- in the final conclusion of this part, I mentioned that uh, if we use humans as a benchmark and we are n- we are not that intelligent. We uh, not that intelligent. We maybe need to to accept that other systems uh, we don't perceive as as intelligence as maybe also. So, this is the reader mail from Jan. Let's change gears for a moment and talk about intelligence. I'm of the opinion that the level of human intelligence is vastly overestimated by humans, and nearly all of it is just us repeating learned behavior. The only thing that we are capable of, almost exclusively, is interpolating between existing knowledge and skills. Let's look at Wozniak's coffee cup test, for example. Cholet talked about this in The Measure of Intelligence. When a human walks into a random kitchen and tries to make a cup of coffee, the human is not learning any new skill, but instead just interpolating between the knowledge of coffee and a general user interface experience and some general assumptions about kitchens. I think that from Cholet's proposed formulas, um, they're generally still useful in that humans have a much lower G factor than a lot of people would think. So uh, Jan says he agrees with Cholet in that society is a form of decentralized intelligence, but I'd like to rephrase it to society is the data source of human intelligence. He says, let's look at the invention of the wheel. It is for us modern humans quite obvious that wheels exist and how they work. Still, it took thousands of years for someone to come up with it. It is to assume that each individual has a minuscule random exploration chance, and if these new ideas and concepts are better, then they'll be added to society, and the next generation of people can use it as training data. Jan says he still thinks that humans are intelligent, and he would like to use them as a baseline. Because humans are not intelligent, as most people think, we have to accept that other solutions are also intelligent. He would also like to address that GPT-3, the model, is much less data efficient than a human baby learning about the world. And he, att- he attributes this fact partially to a highly efficient evolutionary pruning of human brains that happened over billions of years of evolution and a highly optimized learning algorithm. Strictly speaking, 
Both the models and stochastic gradient descent we use are highly general functions and can be applied to many problems. The human brain has probably lost this level of generality and is much more efficient at learning in the real world. So Jan says he doesn't necessarily see it as a downside that our learning models are more applicable, but to um, achieve human level intelligence, we must surpass the human brain parameter count by the amount of training data by some orders of magnitude. He partially attributes it to much more information-dense data in the form of multiple sensory inputs to update our internal world models. For example, a baby can feel a ball, can see the shape of it, can see the colour, can smell it, can taste it, can feel the temperature, etc. And that's the end of Jan's letter. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it is. that is actually an interesting point. The, the point that we, maybe we should not compare the exact parameter efficiency of some like a machine learning model to the one of the human brain but maybe we should normalize it by the amount of different problems it is applicable to that is that is that i i don't think i've heard that yet that makes a lot of sense because we can do sgd with neural networks on things that humans are good at right like vision and text and speech but we can also do them on things that humans are, are crap at and, and it will also solve these problems and it's such a general algorithm so to, then to to say maybe because it's so general we should also accept the fact that it might need a few more parameters to achieve the same the same things so it makes a lot of sense to me humans are not really that good at identifying objects. They still have an error quote. They are not that good at writing text or, or, or a lot of other tasks. And we had in 10, 20 years ago, when the, the things we could come up with were some, some encoding of some chest algorithms or chest ideas to, to beat some Russians. We had quite this idealized idea of human intelligence. Humans do things really badly, like reading text or writing text. Yes. But I would argue we do things incredibly well. What's interesting is that we do have priors. We have cognitive priors. Um, Cholet pointed this out in his paper. He said that there's a lot of anthropocentric worldly things that we are very good at. And, and he gave the example of traveling salesman problem. We're quite good at that, but when the number of cities increases, we get quite bad at it, or we're good in three dimensions, bad in four dimensions. So comparing a perfect human against against a, a neural network model is also a bit unfair. This was my point. But again, it, it doesn't feel like we're comparing apples and, and apples, because sometimes I catch myself every time I look at something like a black towel on the floor, for a millisecond, I'll think it's my cat. And then I'll just immediately correct myself and because we have this, our consciousness has this weird reflexive uh, continual, it has a loop in it. Do you know what I mean? Like neural networks are just left to, the way that our brains work is in cycles and we're constantly doing error correction and we're reasoning on system two and we don't even notice the errors because we have so many levels of correction. Do you know what I mean? We could now move on to my second point, and this was label information density for that CNNs are basically learning garbage features, and I have to agree. But I think the reason why they are learning garbage features is more that, uh, that the input we are giving is also garbage. I'm not surprised that if we feed garbage in, we get garbage out. 
And this is the label information density we are providing the model. That we are, that we are for example, with the image classifier, we are only giving the model a one-hot representation. This is this class, and we are ignoring everything else in the image. I now wanted to talk about uh, the pixel-level information. So if this is what right. you wanted to, okay. And I, I know there are something like a bounding box the detectors and, and, and labels and also a, a, and, and also segmentic separation tasks and labels, and they are better, but I would say they are by far not optimal. I can decompose the object into smaller objects. For example, if I look at this smartphone, I, I, I can see a smartphone, but I can also see a, a screen. I can see some speakers. I can see a, a camera. So I have objective decompositional capabilities. I would say we should do is having a multi-pixel multi label information. The pixel can be part of, of a car, but then more specifically can be part of an engine block and more specifically can be part of, of a school. And I attribute it to that we are, that the information label density we are providing the models is just not high enough. I would argue that's barking up the wrong tree because what the, the problem is, these inductive priors do not have the concept of objectness. So you're still scratching around with individual pixels and how they're connected to their neighbors. Surely a better prior would be able to understand physical objects and how they're related to each other and whether they're connected. I would say that this information would be also encoded if you, if you would uh, exhaustively uh, describe uh, the, the pictures of the real world, that how objects are related would be then also encoded. If you think about humans, we also just work on the gridded pixel thing and, and we, we just infer objects from that, right? Yeah, but we have um, understanding. So we can do all sorts of reasoning that a CNN couldn't do. No, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure your visual system is much of an understanding machine more than just like a, I don't think you do much understanding in vision, right? Then maybe later, but as you say, it's when I see my black towel, I think it's a cat. I think that is like automatic and, and you're just looking at these pixels and your brain is like cat. Yeah, but then it seems to give away that there are levels of processing. So it's almost like my pattern matching brain says cat. And then I have some reasoning and I say, well, it can't possibly be a cat for whatever reason. And I don't see it as a cat anymore. Yeah, that's true. But. Still, the, the fact that you say cat at the beginning is, that's already, I don't think CNNs currently are even there that you say cat. And another interesting point that I saw, what Jan said is, if I look at the smartphone, I see the camera and the speakers and the screen, and I see the USB port and whatnot. But I would argue, I often don't see that. If I look at a smartphone, and I think it's a smartphone, I'm like, it's almost, I don't see that there's a camera. It's like when 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 you're when you're not looking for the trash on the floor, it, it just doesn't exist. And uh, so that's all. I don't know what to make of it, but that's something that I just notice in myself. I don't always just like the objects seem to appear to you at the resolution where you are interested in, and 
yes, I see you. You can. They are for this compositional nature, but it's not like all of this appears to you when you look at them. That's something I find quite interesting. The, the actual resolution of the human eye is actually really limited, and we are constantly looking around, and our brain is stitching that image together. So maybe it. Uh, that could be the reason why. And I was also more talking about re-recognizing objects uh, we are not quite f f f familiar of. I can recognize, for example, it was a, a transmission. Even I haven't really seen it because I can recognize all the components, all the gear screws, axles, and, tr and tr transmission belts. But isn't that some kind of topological understanding that you have? You understand the system or how things are connected to each other, and you can then reason over that knowledge. So it's not really a pattern matching thing anymore. You load it into your framework of understanding and you reason over it. Again, a really good point. I'm on. I'm more on the side of it would be a good idea to build this sort of into our model, this sort of compositionality of objects. I don't think. I think in the case of the transmission example. That is maybe a case where you actually need to load that into your reasoning. But in a lot of cases, you, you don't do. You recognize a new car by its four wheels, right? And things like this. It's not that you explicitly. Like the other extreme would be a mathematician because they find like they find the natural numbers everywhere because they tested the piano axioms. That that's the explicitly. Huh? I did not think that the natural numbers would appear in. I don't know how circles are related to each other but there i go i tested the piano axioms and then they are appear but i think that the visual system does a lot of this hierarchical stuff by itself so i'm in the camp of maybe it should be a good idea to build this into mm. our models just a quick Sorry. point on that one the, the main inductive prior that because we think of feed forward neural networks as being a blank slate but they do still have some priors and assumptions and a hierarchical composition of concepts is one of those priors yeah now we get it at a point because it's a slight different from what i said to what jan was saying wanting basically multi multiple labels per pixels and i'm now talking about priors and so on so i think yeah not exactly representing what what you said. Yeah, I was more talking about the data and uh, label and, and, and label space and less about the model itself. I, I don't think anyone would disagree with you. The, the question is, because it, it would be very difficult, it would be very onerous to come up with a large data set which is labeled in the way you're proposing. Oh, for sure. And uh, my proposal for this would be I would use language. More specifically, I would use uh, 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 movies and YouTube and, uh, and the objective information in, in, this in this videos and in this movies is lower than if we would uh, exhaustively describe all the pixels itself, but it would be actually a feasible uh, way. So what I would propose is that we would train a GPT-style uh, model that not only completes language, but also predicts the next frame of a video or of a movie. And if, uh, for example, if someone in a movie or, or, or video says, I am now picking up 
this axe and now I'm and now I'm shopping this wood. I don't know. We would have the information about what axe is and wood is and another benefit. We would then also let the model learn some, let's call it reasoning over the, with these objects. What also would be good and I am not looking at it from uh, from a natural language processing or understanding perspective I am more looking at it from a computer vision perspective where I would uh, use language to solve computer vision one comment is you, you talked about potentially having a billion labels presumably that would underfit so you would do some hierarchical decomposition of the words not just stemming but also a Volkswagen and a BMW you would change that to car because you, you need to presumably reduce the number of tokens, otherwise you, you, you wouldn't get good generalization. Another question for Yannick maybe is, I'm, I'm sure they're thinking about making a GPT-4 video, and the current GPT model already has an, a, an input size of around 4096, I think you told me the other day, Yann. Presumably that's enough to, that's loads of pixels, right? Could they not just do a vision version? Can, there are transformers for images and presumably there can there it's conceivable to think of a transformer for video i know that there are efforts for doing exact like doing pre-training vision mode like self-supervised on video where you're just trying to predict the next uh, frame they i don't think they include language quite yet but this is a valid route i think and yeah there's such a richness in in video that is not explored by now. Just think of humans watching a YouTube video about something very often. It's so much more information than looking at successive individual pictures or I'd rather watch a YouTube video than read a, a blog post or, or something like this. And yeah. in a YouTube video, you often get shown the actual thing, right? In a blog post, you maybe get it described in, that's where maybe Wallet Saba comes in and says, see, there's missing information because you can only describe things. So I'm like, the idea of using video and the associated language seems very promising because that's such a data-rich, such a data-rich uh, source. It's yeah. incredible. The, the only caveat would be because there are a lot of frames on video, it might be 25 frames a second, you would probably want to discretize and associate the language with a block of frames. Yeah, there's engineering challenges to solve, and as well as there's, you know, like you'd have to have big buffers and so on, because if you decompose a video, then all of a sudden you have the problem of correlated data points, because all of these data points that you extract from one video, they're probably heavily correlated. And then mm -hmm. if you want to build a transformer, you have, you have that giant problem, right? Like, how are you going to do that? But maybe one of the recent linear or quasi-linear attention things will will solve that. I don't know. But it's, mm -hmm. I, I like, I'm on, this seems like a very solid idea. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to know why. I don't know whether it's to do with the representational capacity or transformers are quite homogenous, aren't they? Whereas these convolutional neural networks, they learn lots of bits of patterns that are disjoint, or different filters and so on. I don't know if I'm talking out of my backside there, but transformers seem quite homogenous. And Maybe it's, I'm not sure, and this is not an informed thought, this is just a, a thought, but 
the CNNs, we ever, ever since, since Jan Lacan and even further back, we've built them in a particular way. And so we've built them in a way that, so we have like big receptive fields at the beginning, and then you, you have small filters or a small number of filters because Jan Lacan's computer wasn't that big. And then you reduce that and so on. And, and, and you go to higher number of filters through the layers and transformers don't do this. They just keep the same number of parameters and the same number of tokens and so on through all the layers. I was wondering if you built CNNs this way, what would happen if you like really give it a try? Hmm. But part of the explanation for that is transformers are more of a blank slate. So CNNs, the, the specificity or the inductive prior is much more defined. So that there are more things to tweak in that sense. There are more things to tweak on the transformer. We just don't do it. But we don't need to because on the transformer, on the CNN, we are very precisely specifying lots of small operations that happen in a just disjoint way. Whereas the transformer, I visualize it in my mind like there's this huge pipe of information and we're not really constraining or specifying how that flows. But still, we could build CNNs in a way that is much less influenced by what we think, how we think information should flow. We could build them in a all the layers have as many equally many filters and we don't do pooling and so on like it's feasible i would argue that we have spent quite a lot of time trying different cnn architectures especially hrnet and some of the approaches to rather than having a funnel maintain the high resolution through the whole network we've done architecture search we've done loads of different things and what interests me is that actually it kind of doesn't matter what you do just because of the fidelity and flexibility of neural networks. As long as you have a certain level of capacity in your network, it, it'll work well. But still, transformers appear to be better than CNNs, especially at something like language, right? Yeah. But is that something specific to the substrate of language? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, this whole, you know, this, this what we were saying earlier, language is one dimensional, it's atomic, it doesn't actually have that many symmetries. Yeah, no, I agree on that point. That was just, it was just a weird, a weird thought. And you're right, we have tried a lot of things with CNNs, but maybe no one's given it the real good old Google try <laughs> that makes things work. The, the Elon Musk approach. I think. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's a bit my worry with the plan, this plan of building this video transformer. This is going to be one scale up, even with all the tricks and so on. This is going to be like on a big scale, like your data set are going to be oh, big, sure. right? And so on. And the, the problem is with these kinds of models, there are effects that only appear at a certain level. Like they only start to manifest once you reach a certain scale and and the worry is a bit of can can you get to that scale with even let's say you get a month of tensorflow research cloud the the question is how far can you get with that not really far you fascinated me what you just said there yannick so there are effects which will manifest at a scale well above where we're working now 
that really interests me because it, it also what interests me is some people think that with um, GPT three, eventually there'll be an emergent phenomenon. There'll there'll be some kind of emergent phenomenon that will create something completely different to what we've seen before. But if you were a Google, what would you do? Because it's just so costly to work at this scale. How would they detect it? How would they deal with it? I, I guess they would. Uh, they would also have to apply internally if they were doing something like ultra, ultra big, but at least they would be, let's say, in the realm of possibilities to go there. Yeah, because it's similar to the this massive CERN Hadron Collider. What is it? The big ring thing in Switzerland. They're having to build a bigger one, and then presumably they'll need to build a bigger one. And now it's just become a multi-billion dollar project, and they, they can't really go one up anymore. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do weird things in Switzerland here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this stuff. Bye. Yeah, see ya. Bye. And we're done. So, Mr. Kilcher, happy. Great. We're still recording. We are. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, basically, we, we, we recorded this once and then we realized at the end that we weren't recording. And <laughs> this has only happened to us once when, when we were with uh, Lena Voiter. Yeah, we, we, we chopped about 20 minutes off the start of that. So yeah, well saved, Kilcher. Anyway, it's been it's been a good year. I think, you know, we've got some interesting things coming up next year. So thank you all so much for subscribing and, and for supporting us. And uh, yeah, have a fantastic new year and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Cheers. <laughs>